What is up, Conscious Monkeys? Welcome back to another episode of Traveling to Consciousness. As always, I'm your host, Clanky Terry. And before we get jumping into, we get started, we get moving into the new episode we have with this week's guest, I do want to encourage you to listen to this podcast on the official Traveling to Consciousness app available on the iOS and Google Play Store. It is so cool to me to have my own app and to be able to organize all of the material that I create into one singular space just for you guys. You're going to have access to articles. You're going to have access to audio tapes. You're going to have access to extra stuff that people don't have just on the normal Spotify or Apple. Now, here's the extra thing is that you have an option to sign up and support me through a $3 a month membership, which gets you some small access, but really the main benefit is supporting the show. And I love the idea of transparency. So I want to let you know that every dollar I make through this platform is going to be reinvested back into the podcast, whether it's getting better equipment, whether it's just funding the overhead that I have right now. I just want to make that clear to you that all money made through that sponsorship will go straight back into the podcast as is most money that I'm creating right now. Anyhow, with that being said, you also have options to sign up for a fifth density conscious monkey membership, which gets you the podcast completely 100% ad free, as well as gets you the YouTube videos. Well, they're technically on YouTube, but they're not showing on YouTube. So you basically get these videos that are not available anywhere else in the entire universe. So you get access to the video, you get access to the, the podcast ad free and there's a couple other things coming down the road, but that's another higher tier option. So I want to leave that out there for you. So hopefully I see you there and hopefully you're listening to this podcast on the official traveling to consciousness platform. And if not, no worries. I still love you. So let's get into the episode with this week's guest. Traveling to Consciousness, exploring spiritual journeys to find answers in uncertainty. What is up, Conscious Monkeys? Welcome to another episode of Traveling to Consciousness. As always, I'm your host, Clayton Kuteri. Today's guest has a journey that I actually see a lot of parallels of my own, and so I'm super excited for this one. He was raised in the church. He was heavily, then heavily interested in fitness. He's now heavily interested in helping humanity expand from 3D to 4D consciousness. He goes deep on the law of attraction. He goes deep on the law of one. He goes deep on kundalini and kriya yoga. I hope I said that right, but we'll find out. Con- Beautiful. <laughs> Conscious Monkeys, welcome to the show, Aaron Abke. Aaron, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, man. It's a pleasure to be joining you. It's great to have you, man. I mean, I've seen, I came across your YouTube channel, and I think the probably the most popular video that you put out about the astral realm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I originally shot you a message then, didn't see it all good. So I'm just honored to have you on here after diving even deeper into the stuff you're talking about. Honestly, the alignment couldn't be any deeper, in my opinion. I love it, man. I'm excited to hear about it. Well, speaking about hearing about things, I want to hear about kind of how you got started, because I saw, you know, you had this like evangelical upbringing. 
sounds like you went to the church route and had kind of a rude awakening. So I'd love to hear in your own words, how did you make this transition from an evangelical church pastor life into this world of the unknown and what society deems as kind of woo woo in some aspects? Well, it definitely happened unwittingly on my part. I, I did not, I would have never expected to be where I am today. Uh, at the point where I decided to leave Christianity at 23. Um, I mean, I had no freaking clue what my life was going to look like at that point, because it sounds like you've done the same thing where you grew up religious and had to kind of step away. Is that right? Yeah, I was brought up Presbyterian. And then some things about the church (laughs) rattled me a bit. And I it it pushed me to dig for deeper answers. And so I I believe in the Bible in a certain way. And maybe we can get to that. But Mm -hmm. I believe there's more answers than just what the Bible holds. Same. I I actually think the Bible is way better than Christians give it credit for Hmm. (laughs) in a lot of ways. We'll get into that. Okay. Uh, So when I, I grew up a super devout Christian, a pastor's kid, wanted to follow my dad's footsteps, be a pastor, work in ministry, went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa to get my bachelor's degree in music and theology. And started my worship pastor career at 22. And um, by the time I turned 23, I'd just gotten married at 23 and moved back to San Jose to take my first church job. And I'd been there for maybe three months before the internal conflict was just going crazy inside of me because my parents' church growing up, we had a very like, we call it spirit-filled church, very charismatic, you know, uh, Saw a lot of miracles, a lot of healing miracles. We would have these long worship services. We didn't really talk about who's going to hell, uh, the rapture. Weren't super hard line on like biblical inerrancy, although we believed the Bible was inerrant. We just didn't like thump it over people's heads, you know. So I didn't have to deal with the dogmatic fundamentalism of Christianity until I got my first church job at a church in my hometown in San Jose that was very legalistic and fundamentalist. And so I was bumping up against all this internal conflict, listening to a sermon every week about who's going to hell, why we're the only right religion, and all these people are lost, and women are inferior to men, and all this kind of stuff that just didn't sit right with me. Um, One example is, I think it was like my second or third week there, this lady goes up on stage to give an offering testimony as often happens in church where, you know, I gave 10% of my income last year and this year God blessed me with a new car or whatever. And she gets up to give this testimony and a guy follows her on stage and stands behind her with his arms behind his back like this, just looking all stoic. And so I'm thinking like, is this guy a bodyguard or something? Like, what is he doing up there? And then as her, her speech went on. Um, I started to kind of figure out what, what I thought was going on. And sure enough, when they walked off stage, they, they held hands and he walked her down the stage and they sat next to each other. And I went, oh my gosh, did I just see what I think I just saw? Like these people actually believe what it says in Galatians or something where it's like a, a woman should never speak alone in church. If she does, her husband should stand behind her as her covering for the woman sinned first and then the man. So the woman is of greater sin than the man is and all the stuff Paul says. Um, 
So I'm like, wow, these people actually believe that stuff. And it was so, it felt so gross in my body to be in that moment. Like this woman is seen as being inherently less valuable or spiritual or something because she's a woman. I don't believe in that God. I'm sorry. I don't believe in that God. And so it really quickly, it forced me into a corner to be like, okay, Aaron, do you believe in this version of God or not? Because if you don't, you need to get the hell out of here because it's, it's insufferable to sit in this church service every Sunday. And so I, that's the decision I made. And you, I, you know how it is, right? When you're going to leave a religion, you're risking blowing up your entire life, losing all your friends, potentially all of your family. And then you got to figure out what the hell you do believe about reality and who's in charge of it and where do we come from and where do we go when we die? So there's all these different items bearing down on your consciousness when you're thinking about, should I leave my religion or not? And so I've been wrestling with those questions for the better part of three or four years, even through college. There's, I always hated fundamentalism, but just put up with it. But it got to the point where I couldn't bear the internal conflict anymore. So I pulled the trigger and said, okay, I'm yes, I'm willing to lose all of that. And I did. I lost all of my friends. I lost my entire life, my entire worldview. Everybody in my family, other than my parents and my sister, basically disowned me as a heretic and still, you know, we if we see each other at family gatherings, they'll be cordial. But I know the stuff that they say about me, you know, online and stuff, which is Oh, this, you know, my poor nephew is backslidden heretic and now he's a cult leader and he's on YouTube and stuff. This episode of Traveling to Consciousness is brought to you by Conscious Technologies, LLC. Talk about an aligned company name. This company creating technology that will revolutionize the way that humanity is able to resonate or vibrate with the electromagnetic frequency of your phone, of your Wi-Fi router, of the light bulbs in your house, of really anything. What they do is they have created these amazing minerals, amazing units that you can either place on the back of your phone, you can wear it as a necklace, or they even have like little in-house generators, if you will, that can unify the entire field of an entire house. I've experienced these things in person and I unequivocally can tell you that it does something and it helps you feel more present, more calm, and more connected to the spiritual dimension, if you will. And I highly recommend that you also check out episode number 034, where I actually talked to one of the co-founders and it blew my mind away. One of my favorite episodes where we actually get into how he creates it, why it's created. And, you know, if this wasn't enough of a sell for you, go check out that episode because I know that it will sell you after that. Conscious Technologies, LLC, harmonizing the planet one person at a time. This episode of Traveling to Consciousness is brought to you by Mushy Love. Mushy Love is a latte type blendable mushroom caffeine free elixir that honestly tastes like a liquid cinnamon roll and i know that you're going to find that on their website but it's honestly true it's stacked with more than twice the amount of mushrooms as any other mushroom latte and i know that there's one in particular that we all think about which kind of starts with the word mud but this one blows that one out of the water i highly highly recommend if you even try that one to just give this one a shot and i promise you that you will not you will not be sorry because i just uh it's so good it's honestly so good and i want to get to a place where i can actually just they send me these all the time for free so 
please go and buy it because if you buy more, then they'll start sending me more. And it's just honestly a win-win because it tastes amazing, like even in water. So even if you're cutting, even if you don't want to like put milk in or coffee with it, you can just do it plain in water and it's so freaking good. Guys, go click the sponsors link below. Scroll down to Mushy Love. Buy your pack today. Remember promo code Clayton. Promo code. I can't even talk right now. Promo code Clayton at checkout for 10% off your purchase. Mushy Love. Mushrooms shouldn't have to taste like mud give yourself some mushy love so i mean i was correct about what i was going to lose for the most part but what i was going to gain i couldn't have imagined i couldn't have ever understood what was waiting for me on the other side of that courage to just take that leap of faith and trust god with your life and uh number one is what i'm doing now which is teaching full-time and helping people uh heal their mind and um alleviate themselves from all the suffering they're causing themselves. Every day I wake up with so much gratitude in my heart to be doing what I do. Uh, I couldn't have imagined a more fulfilling life than this. So it's, you know, it's one of those moments in our lives that everything changes. And at the time it seems like the worst possible thing. And then in the future you look back and go, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Dude, that's a crazy moment to experience, right? Is like all that pressure that kind of builds up on you. Cause I experienced something similar in a different realm, but that, that feeling of that, like unknown, cause you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you have that presupposition that everything is going to fall apart. And even when it's such a cornerstone, I feel like even with you, I mean, it might even be stronger. It was such a cornerstone of your life, the religion, the way that you would go about the world. You even had a wife at the time who I'm assuming was related to that same exact religion, that same exact ideology. Yeah. And even that, like, I can only imagine the ramifications within the societal structure because I know that the religion holds, you know, marriage and staying committed to your wife yeah. in such higher regards as well, where to have that sort of backlash would be it, it could be so devastating and you know first of all kudos to you for pushing through that and i guess i'm interested in the miracles you were talking about but while we're on this subject of courage was that that moment of that that woman and the the woman giving the speech and the man leading her back was that the main point or the main catalyst that really I guess, had a pivot in your mind to say, you know, kind of fuck it. Like if I am going to do stuff that I fear, it's like, this isn't right. And so I'm willing to do stuff that I fear to pursue a deeper truth in name of what I'm supposed to actually be here for. Like, was that the catalyst moment you would say that really pushed you over the edge? It was a catalyst for sure. It wasn't the, uh, straw that broke the camel's back moment. Uh, there was a moment, there was a straw moment that happened. There was really three major incidents that happened uh, that shook me. Another one was sitting in a pastor's meeting every Monday. We had our pastor's meetings and the faculty would meet at this big, long round table in the church office. And um, the youth pastor, uh, his name was Brad. He was this kind of, um, he was really high on his horse. He thought he was like the best preacher that God had ever created and stuff. And he would get really in his ego about it a lot. And so he was, he was the one leading the, uh, the meeting that day. And we you always knew whenever Brad was leading the, the uh, pastoral meeting that it was going to be this big dramatic sermon he was going to put on. 
And so he did. And he was talking about how there's all these homeless people here in downtown San Jose around our buildings, and they're all going to burn in hell forever if you and you and you. And he went around the whole table to all like 15 people and pointed his finger at their face and like made sure to give them a moment of like, yeah, I'm talking to you. And then he finished the circle and you don't go out there and preach the gospel to them. Do you understand that? They're going to go to hell forever because you didn't have the courage to go preach the truth to them. And I just about wanted to flip that table over and walk out and be like, I'm done. I'm out of this crazy place. I can't be around you people anymore. There's no way you believe that that's what God is like. Like God's going to let someone else be tortured forever because I didn't have the courage to what about them? What about their say in the matter? Like, what if they were born up in a house with their mom's a prostitute and a drug addict and their dad left them at one year old and they have no father figure and they're out on the streets and they get hooked on drugs and now they're on meth and now they're homeless and God's going to then take them from that horrendously shitty life and then throw them in hell and torture them forever? Like, you guys are out of your minds if you think that's who God is. That was the second big catalyst. The final one was... One day I was walking out to the foyer of the church. I was like a Monday or a Tuesday. And I saw this homeless guy sleeping in front of our church steps, which would often happen. And he was talking to himself and, and kind of rolling around in his sleeping bag. And so I went back in my, in the kitchen to get my food for the day. And I was going to cook him my food and bring him my lunch and serve him a hot meal and just sit there and tell him how much God loves him and pray for him. And I'd spent about 10 minutes cooking my, it was like a hot pocket or something. Uh, didn't eat, didn't eat healthy back then. And I, I was walking back out to the foyer. And when I got back out there, my pastor had called the police and they were strapping this guy to a gurney and like the ambulance people were, and they were going to wheel him out and then take him to the, wherever they take homeless people on drugs. And, uh, he, the pastor was kind of standing there, you know, um, approvingly like, yes, yes, go on, get him out of here. And the guy started cussing and he was like, am I allowed to cuss on your podcast? Yeah, by all means, piss it, fuck, okay. whatever. Yeah. So he was like, fuck you church motherfuckers. Fuck you church motherfuckers. And he just kept saying that. And I thought it was really funny actually, but uh, the policemen were like, oh, come on, man. Not in the house of God, save that language for outside. And my pastor kind of went, oh, and I turned away. And it was like, it was like a Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple moment for me. I, I was so overwhelmed with the hypocrisy that I was like, I have to do something about this. So I said, I said, no, 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 it's okay. Let him say it. That is what we are. And my pastor was sort of like, excuse me, Aaron, what did you just say? I was like, that is what we are. He's calling us what we really are. And I like, I was like staring my pastor down, like, let's get into this. Bro. <laughs> and he was like, come to my office, Aaron. And I was like, gladly. So I went in there and I just let him have it. It was a, not a not a very conscious moment for me, but I told him what a hypocrite I thought he was. I went through the Bible verses where Jesus says, "Hey, you call your you call me Lord, Lord, Lord," and then when there's a homeless guy on your on your front door, you don't feed him, you cast him out. When you did that to him, you did it to me, buddy. Like I am that guy, and because you don't see me, you don't know me. So don't call me Lord. I'm not your Lord. And I said, that's what you all are to me here. I don't, I don't believe anything this church teaches. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And I want to, I want to, I, I quit. Like I'm out of here. But then I sort of felt bad after that, after that event, because I just gotten hired like three months earlier and they had hired me to be like the new young guy who would come in to bring more 
young mm. people in and I was the worship leader and it was really hard for them to find a worship leader in the Bay area. So because I felt bad about the way I let my pastor have it, I apologized and I said, look, I'm willing to stay for another three months to give you guys more time to find a, a new worship pastor. So we kind of worked out a deal where I didn't have to stay for the sermon and stuff. <laughs> he appreciated the nod I gave him, but it was the worst three months of my life, man, being in that place. I was at, I was at a point in my spiritual walk where I was completely done with that religious archetypal view of God. And I was so desperately hungry for like deep spiritual truth that being there was just, you know how it is, was just insufferable every Sunday. So I'm like reading Zen and stuff on the weekdays and then going to this super fundamentalist church and leading worship on Sundays. So it felt like I was living a double life. So it felt really good to be done with that. And then um, as I expected, you know, my divorce happened a few years later because my ex-wife just wasn't making that transition with me like I was. So I really almost like blew up my entire life and started from scratch and got to kind of reinvent myself. Yeah, bro. I mean, it's a wild story. <laughs> I, I find it interesting. There's a couple things I find interesting. The, the main one that I think most people can relate to is the idea of that, or maybe not most people, but at least that I can relate to is that tension that you were feeling in that least last three months that you were working there. It was a, I could feel it in your voice, that tension of, I know I'm not where I supposed to be. And that was somewhere where I was, I was a software engineer at the time. And that feeling is kind of what catalyst with my catalyst push was to quit my job, uproot my life in San Diego and, you know, travel the world. And first of all, I mean, again, kudos to you for pulling that off because I know, I know that's such a crazy feeling of holy shit, like what's about to happen. But man, the other, the other thing that's really sticking out to me, and I'm not sure if this is something you've thought about is, is that craziness, the, the crazy, the, uh, homeless person who may or may not have been on drugs, maybe probably was having that. I forget the exact words, but fuck you church people. Fuck this. Like this isn't mm -hmm. the energy of this. You're not representing what you claim to be representing. At least that was yeah, the, even the homeless guy knew it. Right. And so here's where I, this, this is something I've been thinking about or toying with a lot lately. And it's the idea of how gray the line is between crazy and genius, how much, <laughs> how, how we don't really know what the difference is between crazy and and genius. And yeah, I, I, this is something I also saw in some of Dolores Cannon's work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Oh yeah. Have you read, I forget which book it was, but there's one book where she starts talking about how somebody was like toying with the fabric of like, I guess there's like this like cloth or something of everyone's life is kind of intertwined. And it's like this like very mm -hmm. long carpet and how somebody basically you know, was shown this, this tapestry and they basically went mentally insane in the real world. Like in our physical reality, they went insane because they were mm -hmm. exposed to such a thing and reading that passage or that story, it really had me shown this different light on kind of homeless people. Right. I mean, you see so many of them that just run around kind of just mouthing the words that come to their head, right? This stuff that we would label as crazy, but you could see that there might be truth to what they're saying. They're kind of, it's kind of this like unfiltered dialogue that they're having with, with themselves, but just projecting it out into the universe. And so 
I don't know. I mean, I guess it sounds like that's something you've thought of before, but I guess where do you kind of sit in this whole realm of crazy versus genius and how do we even decipher between the two of them? Mm -hmm. That's a great question and one I've never been asked before. So the first thing that comes to mind is I think that a lot of what genius is at the time when it happens looks crazy to the mainstream way of thinking. And so often what's called crazy ends up being genius later, right? So that's one way of looking at it. The other way I look at it is looking at somebody like Kanye, mm. where, you know, Kanye, like 98% of what that dude says is fire. I mean, he's so on point. He has such a high level of awareness of how the world works and the deep systems that really run things and what needs to be done for us to transcend those systems and really become unified. And then like 2% of what he says might be a bit of his ego coming out or he doesn't verbalize it well. And then people write off 98% of the other stuff he says is crazy. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way, right? You can be an absolute genius in one area and then be unintelligent in another area. And it doesn't, they don't negate each other. And that's the paradox of the human experience is that we have like these two versions of us or, or two selves in a sense. We have the, the lower self and the higher self, or we could say the not self, and the true self, the the lower self is the animalistic self that's made up of the, the drives and the urges to gain pleasure and to avoid pain and be egocentric and selfish. It's our survival-based self. And it's not really what we are ultimately. It's a very temporary, transient aspect of us. What we really are is the spiritual self, the eternal self that always exists in the mind of God. And that's where all genius comes from, right? That's where true intelligence comes from. So the degree to which somebody's tapped into that higher self, they can express that genius, the, the innate intelligence within them. But if they haven't fully healed or transcended the lower self, there can be a bit of that happening at the same time. And because the egoic mind is so dualistic, it can't accept that both can happen or both can be true, where someone can have some crazy stuff that's not really healed yet in them that they're not aware of, and they can be a super genius in another area. So ego just tries to write everyone off with a single label, crazy or genius. You can't be both. You're one or the other. And I actually saw this for myself working at Google. Uh, when I was a personal trainer at Google for four years, I had these clients who like you were software engineers and they're working at Google. So they're, they're like genius level uh, engineers, like if they took an IQ test, I'm sure they'd be like 160 or more, you know, super, super intelligent when it comes to one area of intelligence, right? Like linear intelligence. But when it came to other areas of intelligence, I could see that they were almost, you know, mentally handicapped. They were so deficient in other areas of intelligence, like social intelligence. I would have uh, one of my clients almost every week, he would walk in, you know, from the weekend, we'd meet on Mondays. I'm like, hey, David, how was your weekend, man? And he would stare at the ground and blink rapidly. And then he would look up at me and say, it was good. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, look at that. Like he's so intelligent with linear intelligence that he, he handles everything in life through linear intelligence. Mm. So he goes through his mind and thinks, what is the most accurate possible response I could make? And then scans all the options. And the best option ends up just being, good right? yeah. <laughs> but he still had to go through all the options to make sure and it's like well when it comes to social intelligence that's not it's not linear right it's it's very feminine it's feeling based it's emotive 
So you just are trying to connect with somebody. You're not trying to give the most accurate possible answer, you know? So there's different kinds of intelligence. And I think a person like Kanye is probably expressing many different kinds of intelligence at different levels. Well, first of all, I'll give a shout out to Kanye because I love that you brought him up. Always a always a favorite of mine to discuss. Honestly, one of the Same. one of the more viral clips that I had on my Instagram was about Kanye. So I'll be sure to clip this up and throw it on there as well. Nice. <laughs> He's the Tupac of our generation. It's really amazing to me. And I think you hit the nail on the head with how we can view people. It's either like we almost have still have this binary approach to genius and crazy, right? And maybe that's a good point of my question right is like well where does genius become crazy where's crazy genius and it really comes down to what the topic is that the person's talking about right i don't think like whether people have their personal vendettas of them in whatever regards i don't think there's a sane person who can say that he's crazy whenever it comes to music like his music is pure genius and where it kind of gets interesting for me This episode of Traveling to Consciousness is brought to you by Aquarius Mushrooms, and Aquarius Mushrooms creates what I can only describe as these fine art sculptures that are all one of a kind and these plush mushroom fabric sculptures. They're what I would describe as being like little trip buddies. They're perfect for anyone who has a room that is dedicated to spiritual adventures or anyone who is looking for a fine piece of art that is one of a kind. I think I said that, but one of a kind to enhance their psychedelic experience. I'm sober and I look at mine all the time and it just oozes out this creative and spiritual energy that I it's hard for me to stop looking at sometimes. And so if you are on even maybe just smoking some weed, like I can only see how this thing would open up a portal to a new world. So I highly recommend that you click the sponsors link below, scroll down where you see Aquarius mushrooms, click their website and see if any of them speak to you. Because if it does, I can only imagine how it's going to speak to you in the real world. Aquarius mushrooms, mushrooms for the new age of enlightenment. This episode of Traveling to Consciousness is brought to you by Buzzsprout. And now this ad is for any of my fellow podcasters out there. Or even if you're starting to think about a podcast or creating one, a key that you need to know is that you got to put your audio somewhere. Then you need someone or something to distribute that audio. And Buzzsprout is by far the best option that I have found to get your audio put out on all of the mainstream directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play Store, all of them iHeartRadio, you name it. I have been able to be featured on over 18 different podcast platforms because of how easy Buzzsprout makes it to integrate and host your audio on these sites. And honestly, I think I'm hosted on even more than that, but that's all that they'll tell me is it's over 18. And they have great software to track where your episodes are being downloaded, how many downloads you're getting, and so much more. Guys, I highly recommend it for anyone who is starting or interested in starting a podcast. So please go check the sponsors link down in the bottom of the show notes. Scroll down once you get there, go to Buzzsprout, click on the link, and I want you to start hosting, start your podcast, because we need more. It's amazing. Buzzsprout podcast hosting made easy. And I I feel like there has to be this level of the articulation of it. And this kind of touches on where you're speaking of in regards to the feminine, the feeling into what feels right, what makes sense. But then if you're not able to actually articulate that in a way that makes sense, it comes across as crazy. It comes across as something that we need to dispel, dismiss, say, this is all bullshit. 
But then if we bring it back to stuff like the law of one, it's like, this is a version of me. There's a version of me in here. There's a nugget of truth in here that I need to pay attention to. And something I always mention to people, there's a rant that Kanye goes on at TMZ. I don't know if you've seen this video. One of my all-time favorites. If you're listening and haven't seen it, just search Kanye West TMZ rant. It's probably like five years ago. Every single time I watch it, there's like a new thing that comes out. He starts talking about like mental prisons we're in. He starts talking about the medication, the way we're medicated. And it comes across incoherent at times. But every single time I listen to it, there's like a new layer of it that like evolves in my mind. I'm like, oh shit, like I didn't catch that the first time I heard it or oh shit, now I see what he's saying. But it's almost like there's this issue or not issue, but a challenge for us to be able to take this unknown thing, the infinite divine soul that we are incarnating as and try to articulate that into this three-dimensional physical world where if you're if you're not articulating it precisely and not only that but defining terms in the way that other people understand them then you can get mm-hmm. completely drastic outcomes by the way other people interpret what you're saying yeah uh, are you have you done plant medicines much in your life oh yes <laughs> okay so you know how it is right when you have a very intense psychedelic experience and then somebody asks you to explain it or you try to explain it and you just ramble like an idiot yeah and that you kind of lose their attention they're like okay cool bro i'm sure it was awesome yeah. <laughs> you're like no 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 oh, i just can't put it into words yeah that that is what i think is happening to someone like kanye or anybody who gets deeply red pilled as we say about the nature of the societies we live in and um what's that jay krishnamurti quote um it is no measure of health to be well adapted to a sick society Mm. something like that it's like when your eyes truly become open to the way the world actually runs and who runs it and what the real motives are so much new data is now in your awareness and your intellectual mind doesn't have the time to catch up which it may take years or a decade for you to fully be able to like put into words how the world works and the things you see and why you see it it's it's awareness it's not it's not uh conceptual and so this reality we're living in right now is a psychedelic experience. It's just a much denser, slower psychedelic experience that we are adjusted to. But I've had this thought before of like, if I was born into the DMT world that we see when we go on DMT, it wouldn't be weird to me, right? It would just be like, oh, this is just the way it is. And if I were to take a um, human drug that I could smoke to put me into Aaron Apke's body, I would think this was crazy and psychedelic, right? So it's the psychedelic experience to me really means introducing a completely different perspective of reality that annihilates your idea that your previous perspective was the one absolute one, right? That's what I think psychedelics really do at their heights is that they completely tear asunder our point of view of how reality looks and says, oh no, you can look at it from this point of view from which your silly human point of view is like a joke or just an illusion. It's like a dream you're having. You can do that infinite times and infinite ways with reality. Cause it's like, it's like a, what are those things? A kaleidoscope. Mm. It's like 
there's no one correct picture of it. It's this constantly changing thing, phenomenon. And so it really just matters, who do I want to be in reality? And that's the perspectives I should choose to take. So if I want to be a loving, intelligent, empowered person, I have to take up points of view about reality that will be conducive to that, like oneness. You know, oneness is the gateway to real intelligence, in my opinion. Albert Einstein was very um, adamant about that, that the nature of reality is not separation, but it's all intimately connected. And we won't ever know reality until we see it through that lens. So, you know, these these different spiritual truths that we we talk about so much are invaluable for us to express our full potential of who we are as a divine being. It's not it's not different than those spiritual truths. Like we are oneness. We are eternity expressing itself in this particular way. And I think that when someone starts to see that in their awareness, they may sound crazy to somebody who's still thinking they're just a body in a separate world who's going to die and be wiped out from existence. Of course, that paradigm looks crazy to someone like that. But then you just have to ask the question, well, what is crazy? What does it mean to say something's crazy? How do you know it's crazy? I still grapple with that question myself. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, also something that was going through my head as you were talking to make a parallel for people who may not have dabbled with psychedelic drugs is even the dream world, the dream realm, the astral realm, whatever people want to call it. That is so much that so this it's so similar to what i'm realizing with psychedelics is that it's personalized messages just for you like if i have a dream and i if i'm having a dream and i tell you it and your interpretation the Aaron perspective of it is going to be like well this is what i got out of it and then i'm like but no that's not that's not what happened wait you're not why aren't you understanding what actually happened for me with a clayton perspective and it's like Dude, because I didn't, I haven't had my whole life experiences up to this moment to interpret it that way. And so it becomes this very interesting thing of, with dreams in particular, of interpreting them almost for yourself. And it's good to get feedback, but, and this even goes to good coaching that I've realized throughout my days, is it's not about me telling you the way the world is. It's about helping you Mm -hmm. figure out how you're interpreting the things that are happening, let's say for you, some people say to you, but happening for you for you to understand that almost next level of understanding or evolution to take your life to the next phase. Absolutely. It's uh it's all the universe is almost like a game of transcending points of view. Mm. Because when you're in one point of view and you're you're identified with it, points of view are sort of designed metaphysically to reinforce themselves, right? And argue with and disagree with any other point of view because it has to it's one point of view so i can't acknowledge all the other ones as being equally true or there's no more point of view so when you're in a point of view like the political left or the political right they're always going to look crazy to you and evil and whatever else until you mature enough to realize that there isn't just one point of view to look at the universe from In fact, every point of view is equally valid from the highest perspective because they're all just different ways of looking at the same one thing. So for example, if I grew up in a household that was abusive and uh, like religiously abusive, 
I'm probably going to grow up to be an ardent atheist who hates religion and hates God, right? So Christians, the, the Christians I grew up around would typically see an atheist person like that and say, oh, that person's evil. They're a sinner. They're full of the devil. And I know that that's true. No doubt about it. But if you were if you were born up in their shoes, you would understand why they think that, right? You would say, oh, of course you think religion's evil. You were abused by your you know, youth pastor or whatever. So that's where forgiveness comes from, I think, is realizing that whatever someone's point of view is, in a sense, no one really chooses the point of views they have about reality. We could really say point of view, points of view choose us and they live and express through us, the person or the people to experience themselves. And a point of view will last until it wears itself out in someone's mind where they've, they've suffered so much because of that point of view that something in them cries out to say, oh, there's got to be a different way or a better way of looking at life like I did, like you did with religion. And then awareness has opened itself to other points of view. And then you do start to see the validity of that which you once thought was crazy, right? No, I love that. I love that articulation so much. It's reminding me of my perspective on relationships and for the most, I'll just say relationships. Because I know when I was in high school and kind of when I was starting to get into college, I was very much the nice guy. And we can go very deep on this topic. But then I found a forum on Reddit that exposed me to, uh, for lack of a better word, being a fuckboy. So I tried putting mm -hmm. on that hat for like three, four years. And, you know, it quote unquote, quote unquote, worked for, you know, hookup culture, getting with girls. But over a couple of years, it started to have me realize, like, I, I remember, I remember looking at one of the posts and thinking to myself, like, if this is actually happening, like this can't be healthy. Like something about this isn't healthy. <laughs> the path that I'm going down here with being a fuck boy is not healthy in some regard. And if I'm thinking, because as a step back, a whole part of this forum was this blanket statement of men are like this women are like this here's how you operate yeah. at this base biological three-dimensional reality of understanding how biological structures are imposed that create a relationship and i remember thinking i remember sitting on my bed and seeing a post and thinking to myself that if i think that there's something wrong with this then there has to be a girl out there that also thinks that there's something wrong with this ideology or this nature of being. And I think when I had that thought, that was like my catalyst for kind of pushing out from the fuckboy phase and into this more healthy, integrated understanding of, and I mean, I'd at the time I didn't realize it, but now I'm realizing that that drive towards a more healthy divine masculine energy that I believe is very, very lacking in our society today. Big time. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And it's really like, I don't like who I'm becoming, right? Is really what we grapple with. 100%. I don't like who I'm being in this point of view. Who am I? Who are you being is the ultimate question. Because in a very real way, we only ever see our own state of being. We never actually see another person's state of being. We see our interpretation of it based on our unique biases, beliefs, and whatnot. So if I don't like who I'm becoming, that's all that matters. Because if I don't, if I don't like who I am, I, I will not like the world I'm in, right? The world is an extension of how I see myself. We look inside first, 
we decide how we want to see ourselves, and then we project an entire world that gives us evidence of that person we think we are or we think we want to be. So whenever you read a self-help book or get a self-help coach, that's the first thing that they'll do for you is they'll take you inwards and say, you've got to re-envision who you are and who you want to be. How do you see yourself five years from now? Okay, well, who's the guy that can have that life? Embody that guy now. How does that guy think? How hard does that guy work? What time does that guy get up in the morning? How much does he work out? How much does he read? And they literally back engineer you step-by-step into being the person that you really want to be. And in that way, they're reaching inside of you and pulling out potential that was always there. But when we're so locked in to whatever, whether it's being a fuck boy or an athlete or a musician, if we just have a label about who we are and we're not constantly open to new possibilities of who we are evolving out of us, then we won't discover them, right? Because the universe won't infringe on our free will and force you to realize some potential inside yourself that you're afraid to realize or don't want to realize. So I think part of self-actualization is this um, owning your passions, owning your gifts and talents, while also being fully open to becoming something you never thought you could be. That's where the potential, in my experience, really manifests itself is that the universe, once you're open to saying, hey, I do have these passions, I want to express these gifts, but I'm also open to anything, man. If you have a different vision for me that's even better, please manifest it through me. And then you're just following the breadcrumb trail of what feels exciting in your life. And before you know it, five years goes by and you're teaching people on YouTube or something that you could have never in your life imagined you would do. I mean, I thought I thought I was a horrible public speaker, for example, my worst, my least favorite thing about leading worship was having to talk to the audience. I would get super That's nervous. That's kind of important like, too. <laughs> yeah. Like I have to say a few words and then start singing. And it was those few words that I hated the singing I could do all day, but like make me talk to you. Oh, I hate my personality. I think I'm stupid. I don't have anything valuable to share. Those were my beliefs about myself. So, I mean, the last thing I thought I would ever be is what I'm doing today, but thank goodness I was open to those new possibilities. Which is so crazy too, because this kind of ties in what you were saying beforehand, which is, you know, you have a perspective of who you are, but Clayton, me also has a perspective of who Aaron is and everyone you come into contact with has a perspective of who you are. And all of those are just such small fractions of the deeper truth. And where I find it interesting, and this kind of ties into what you're saying at the end, is I went back and I watched, I think your first video, it was about the law of attraction on YouTube. And in my opinion, when I saw you, I was like, damn, this dude's like a solid presenter. Like, you know, you had cadence, it was good presentation skills. I mean, obviously, you've improved as anyone who does it for four or five years does. But where it gets interesting, because I didn't know this, that you were having that self-talk you have that mental self-talk of like, why am I doing this? I'm bad. Da, 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 da. But then from my perspective, I'm like, this dude's pretty solid at presenting. Yep. Like I get why, you know, your YouTube took off. I get why people are listening to you. I understand why this is happening. And yet it's so interesting to hear on the other side of things in your mind. It is. It was like, nah, this isn't, I'm bad at this. Yeah. I say this all the time. I think that in many ways, our perspective of ourself is the least accurate of the of the whole universe. Like a, a perfect stranger in many ways could meet you and have a better picture of who you are than you do in the sense that 
you're always on the inside of this person. And so just like when you're exposed to something too long, you get numb to it, you lose perspective about it, it becomes normal to you, and you actually stop seeing a lot of the aspects of yourself that may be very, very important or valuable or beautiful. They just become like whatever to you. And so like, like you said, somebody can watch me speak and say, oh, this guy's got a, a talent for this. And the only thought going through my head while I'm talking is, why are you embarrassing yourself like this? Just give it up. You'll never be good at this. And our, our points of view couldn't be more opposite from each other. But which one of those two is more accurate? Yours was. And you just saw me on YouTube. You didn't know anything about me. So not in every way, maybe, but in a lot of ways, our opinion of ourselves is the least accurate or the least trustworthy. And we should actually give more, more credit, more onus to the people in our life, friends, family, who give us those compliments or tell us what they see in us, we should pay really close attention to that. Cause it's like, I don't really have a good shot at seeing that in myself because I am that. So I'm like, I'm so close to it. There's almost no room for me to see it. I love the open-minded nature that you bring with this, because this is something that I feel like I've also kind of grappled with at least. And to kind of bring in the shadow aspect of what you're talking about, cause I think this is super important being a content creator, being someone who puts themselves out in, th in front of hundreds of thousands of people, being someone who's continuously pushing the awareness of what they hold true and what they want to manifest in the world. You are going to be confronted with people who disagree with your point of view. And it's interesting because I believe that it's healthy, but then I also believe that staying away from negative energy, negative comments is also something that you should be very mindful of. So where do you kind of find that balance or the integration of, I still need to listen to people who disagree with me because first of all, it keeps you grounded. It keeps you humble. It keeps you honest. But at the same time, they could just be projecting their own bullshit, their own fears, their own insecurities onto the work that I'm doing. This episode of Traveling to Consciousness is brought to you by Superpass. Now, what the hell is Superpass, you might be asking? Well, I use Superpass to host my website, host all of my amazing content. I use them for my app, the app, the amazing app that I know you're listening to this on that I don't even need to tell you about that's available on the Amazon and oh, it's not available on Amazon. It's available on the iOS and Google Play Store. That app, the one that you're listening to this podcast on, the Traveling to Consciousness app, they're absolutely amazing. So honestly, if you're a content creator and need to organize and put things in one place, I highly recommend Superpass. They have an amazing community. They have an amazing support team who I've always been in contact with, reaching out with and they're always increasing that product. So I highly recommend it. At checkout, I highly also recommend that you use promo code Clayton2022 because you'll receive 10% off your first 12 months of a yearly or monthly package, which is up to like a $300 value, which is crazy. So please go do that. Check that out. Click the link below. Go down to sponsors. Click on the Superpass affiliate link and sign up today. Superpass, everything you need to build a content business. This episode of Traveling to Consciousness is brought to you by Revive CBD. 
Now I know what you're thinking, another CBD product, and typically I would completely agree with you. I've gone through all my trials and tribulations with CBD products, but this CBD cream is unlike anything else. Honestly, I don't know what it is, but there's something in the technology of it that it helps absorb into your skin and actually get to the place that aches and soothes your muscles almost instantaneously. It, it's close to instant. It's probably about a five to 10 minute activation that I've noticed, but sometimes it goes a little bit quicker. And so I know it can be difficult for the find the right one. And this was my personal favorite that I found after long enough. <laughs> I don't want to go back to that dark time, but I found it. It works amazing. And the creator of it is an incredible guy. So I highly recommend you click the sponsors link below, click on the revive CBD tab and get yours today. Revive CBD, feel better, live better, all premium, all natural CBD products. Yeah. Well, that is a very fine line when you get into the public sphere. Uh, your ego will be very quick to want to see the negative things people have to say about you. And, you know, the fear based animal survivalist mind will want to consider that they're all true because that part of your mind is literally designed to always assume the worst, right? Mm. It's the same part of your mind that is you know, as a hunter gatherer walking through the forest, it's that part of your mind that's always on alert that there might be a bear around the next corner or behind that rock. Like you have to assume the worst because if you don't assume the worst and you're wrong, the consequences can be really severe. So there's nothing to hate about that part of you. It's not a bad part of you. It's just the way we evolved as human beings. And so that part of you will pay extra attention to the negative comments. And I'm sure you, you've done this since you've been podcasting as well, where you'll read through the comments of a podcast and you'll all read like a hundred comments. And this was more so when I started YouTube and I've obviously had a lot of chance to navigate and transcend this in my mind now. But man, when I first started YouTube, I would read a hundred positive comments. Oh, this changed my life. This gave me a new perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then one comment <laughs> from somebody saying, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Do yourself a favor and get off YouTube. And my, my mind all day long is going over that one comment. And I'm like, why is this one comment so important to me when I had a hundred positive comments? Why am I not obsessing over those ones? And it's the part of your mind that wants to make you better. It's like, good. If it's positive, then we're good on that end. We don't need to think about it anymore. We need to think about what we're not good at, what we can improve upon. And I think there's a, a gift to that. I think there's a, a good quality to that where we can improve ourselves dramatically by being open to criticism and feedback from an impersonal point of view. Really, when we personalize it is when we lose the ability to gain from it, because then it just becomes a sad story that makes me depressed and I'm not actually learning or expanding my awareness at all. So for me, I've, I think I become so much better as a teacher through the people that disagree with me in the comment sections or whatever, because somebody will ask a question that I know the answer to, but I've never had to articulate it before. And this person is forcing me to come up with the words to explain it. And as I'm sitting there typing my answer in a, in a kind of a flow state, new ways of expressing this idea start coming out as, as that divine intelligence in us knows how to get answers to the problems at, at hand. And I'll just be amazed at the intelligence that comes through when I have to prove a point about something I'm teaching. So I, I'm now super grateful for when people want to have 
a back and forth with me and it doesn't actually happen very often so much so that when it does happen i'll always thank the person for being willing to spar a little bit because most people will either not respond to your response or they'll just say something negative and dip out i really appreciate those people that are willing to push back push back push back because just like training and mixed martial arts or something like you you get better by fighting the best fighters in the gym not the guy you can beat up easily right um, you want to put yourself to the test in that way. And so we should see our critics as a helpful training tool that we can use to make ourselves better. I find there's a lot of truth in that. And maybe it's something that you kind of learn as you progress through this online societal <laughs> craziness that you get exposed to with so many people just consuming something like and that's and i think that's probably a section of it as well is being able to discern the level of awareness that someone's actually bringing to the comments right because there's a spectrum fully there's yeah people who are just like you're an idiot and then there's the people who are like well i see what you're saying about this but if you view it in this light or that light and then you can kind of almost judge it from the level of awareness that they're bringing to the comment section so that and I'm sure you don't waste your time on people who are like, you're an idiot, you're dumb, right? Like those are almost just like step past because it's it's someone projecting an insecurity towards you in regards to those things versus someone who's actually right. trying to progress their level of thinking. Yeah. Well, when you go back to the maxim of I only ever see my own state of being, then when you really learn that and you integrate that truth beyond just the conceptual then you actually lose the ability to feel triggered at people being a dick to you because mm. you just understand that's just who they think they are. Like you can only project how you feel about yourself onto other people. So I may, I may see someone who is doing heinous evil to little children or something that we deem as horrible. And I'm still not going to get upset at this person and call them names and see them as evil. If I know that I am one with God, Therefore, everyone's one with God. I may disagree with their behavior. I may even have a conversation with them about what I disagree about, but I can't hate you anymore or put you out of my heart if I truly love and have forgiven myself for everything. So when you know that, it's like the, the negative comments you see of people trying to get under your skin or insult you. To me, it's just there's a compassion that comes out of like, ah, I'm so sorry, brother, that you have that in your heart. I know what it's like to live with that toxic negativity. And you just, you have to get it out of yourself and onto others. The ego makes you feel like the only way to feel better about myself is to tear other people down. Uh, I lived that way most of my life. So when I see that state of consciousness now, it's really just a compassionate response. Yeah, that's super, super powerful and definitely a spot to go. I mean, especially from the place of getting triggered, right? If I, I very quick, what year was it? I think it was probably during the it was probably 2015. So during the 2016 presidential election, I remember I was so ingrained with that, like very 3D, very into it. I could tell you every fucking quote that someone said during that whole run up. And it <laughs> <laughs> and it struck me during that because we were I was talking with a buddy of mine who was on the other side of the aisle from me. And he, politically speaking, and he we were talking about climate change. And he was saying things that triggered me and my default programming was to just like blurt out random shit or things that I thought were true. And through right. that process, it showed me that whenever I get triggered, it's, it's kind of almost showing me something that I don't know. 
Like it's not that he's a hundred percent right, but there's something that a part of this conversation that I don't fully understand. And this triggering is like something that I need to explore deeper. There's, there's more answers in this triggering for me to figure out. Yeah, you got it. It's, it's that the ego feels threatened Mm. that its point of view may not be the ultimate and that's why people have a hard time admitting they're wrong because they're identified with what they think about something. And so to be wrong about an opinion is to, is like an attack upon who I am. Mm, right? right. And, uh, this is why I love a course of miracles so much because the course really healed these areas of my perception more than anything else did in terms of how we see ourselves and how we see others that, that others are my greatest mirror to see myself as I really am. Meaning the way that I feel about somebody else in any moment, the way that I'm responding or reacting to somebody in any moment is the most accurate reflection of how I truly feel about myself. So for example, uh, if somebody is, is saying something I disagree with and I'm just getting annoyed at them and I don't have patience to just listen to them, share their point of view, well, that's a sign that I don't have patience for my own negative moods. I don't have patience towards myself when I'm going through something. You know, I I guilt trip myself. I feel like I'm a burden. Those are the kind of things we project onto others without realizing it. And we think it's really in them, but it's not. It's in you. And the difference is that it's not that we don't see those things happening once we heal them in ourselves. That's called discernment, right? And there's a big difference between discernment and judgment. Discernment still sees that the old lady is getting robbed across the street and I can go help save her. Judgment sees the old lady getting robbed and says, look at those evil bastards robbing that lady. I'm going to go give them what they deserve. And Mm. you you run over with this anger in your heart. You want to do damage to somebody. That's the judgment of that person's evil. But I don't need that judgment. I don't need that anger in my heart to go help that lady. I just need love in my heart. So love is going to help the the victim quote unquote and not hate the victimizer in the process you don't need to do that because in a in oneness everyone is included this person who's doing the robbing or the abusing must not know who they are they must not be aware of oneness they must not know who god is because surely if they knew who god was in their heart if they knew we are all one and that what you do to somebody else you do to yourself come on obviously they wouldn't be beating this person up right now so do I does do I add anything positive to the universe by hating them in my heart? I clearly don't, right? If I judge the murderer, I am in a sense creating the murderer because in the collective consciousness all minds are joined. And I mean we feel that on a day-to-day basis as the collective consciousness on the planet keeps shifting and tilting in different directions, we feel it because our minds are joined. So if everyone's judging the same person as being evil, we're actually co-creating that evil person. Whereas if we forgave them and saw that at their core, they are innocent and they are divine, they just don't know who they are and they're lost. So we can show them who they are through kindness and forgiveness and love. It doesn't mean we don't stop people from harming others. Of course we do, but we don't seek vengeance as a means for justice. So I think that that's getting back to your question of why we get triggered by differences of opinion or political ideologies or whatever it may be. Of course, the miracle says, 
anything that needs defense, you do not want. For anything that needs defense will weaken you. Because in order for me to defend myself of, oh, don't you say that to me. Let me tell you who I am. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I must think that I'm inherently fragile and able to be harmed by this person if I'm so defensive about what they're saying towards me. If I know who I am and I'm confident in who I am, that person can say negative comments to me all day long and it won't make me upset because I know it's not true. So if it does trigger me, like you said, part of me in the deep recesses of my subconscious must believe that about myself too. And that's why it hurts. And that's kind of the protection mechanism, but it goes back to what you're saying. Cause if we're all connected, then you do believe it because that's why this person is saying it to you in the first place. It's why this thing occurred yeah. that you experienced. Something I want us to stick on for a second is the discernment versus judgment, because this was something that was very fascinating. And it, I don't remember how long I grappled with this. It wasn't too long, but it was with regards to relationships and other people, because I kind of was like, well, I don't want to be judgmental, but at the same time, I want to be with someone who is fit and healthy. You know, I want to be with someone who takes care of themselves. So am I being judgmental of if I'm, and this is something that I've seen in the media where they'll try to guilt trip people. And especially with like this trans movement that's happening, they've done it before, but specifically with this trans movement, it's like, well, if you don't like you know, if you're not into trans people, like sexually or romantically, then, you know, we're going to cast judgment on you because you're judging them. When in reality, and this is kind of where I kind of came to is, it's more of discerning what type of energy, what type of person you want to be with. And for me, it's someone who's healthy, fit, female, you know what I mean? And so to have this, I don't know where I'm trying to go with this, but but applying that lens of discernment versus judgment on the romantic person you want to be with, you can even expand this out to the friends you want to have. It's like, you don't have to be friends and hang out with everyone. You need to discern who it is to be friends with so that you can elevate yourself. You can elevate your life. You can elevate to the position where you're trying to go with your life. And if you're not discerning and just letting everyone in because you're, you believe that it is judgmental to do the opposite then you're just holding yourself back from your true potential. A hundred percent. It's sort of just like the way we are with food, right? If like for me, I, I inherited, unfortunately, my mom's gag reflex where fish, mm. just the, the very smell of fish, there's this response in my body of like, I'm going to hurl, I'm going to throw up. And I wish it wasn't there because fish is really healthy for you. And I want to like fish. I just can't make my body like it, right? So when I'm around people who like fish, I don't try to put them down for liking fish and say, oh, well, fish is so stupid and only dumb people like fish. That's judgment. What I actually do is understand that, hey, to them, fish tastes good. So that's awesome for them. Unfortunately for me, it doesn't taste good. That's just discernment. I haven't made anybody superior or inferior. And that's to me the caveat between judgment and discernment. Discernment doesn't make any value judgments on somebody. It just sees things as they are. Mm. This person is doing this act, this thing. This person is at this level of consciousness, living their life this way or that way. And it's just not in alignment with me. They're just as valuable as I am. They're just as beautiful in God's eyes as I am. But not everyone's meant to be with everyone. Not every, um, you know, like uh, in chemistry, there's all these different chemicals. They don't all interact with each other harmoniously. 
But that's a good thing because the full spectrum of chemistry allows for the entire universe to be appearing as it is. So not every chemical is supposed to interact perfectly and harmoniously. Some of them are supposed to repel from each other. And uh, that's how humans are, right? We're not all supposed to marry each other, be best friends or whatever the relationship is. But that doesn't mean I have to hate anyone or see them as inferior or have any judgments about them. Just understand, you know, that person is not meant to be my best friend. And I think that that's wisdom. Uh, I think that when we truly see reality as God sees it, everything is beautiful in its own way. Even the people that rub us the wrong way, even the people that have completely different interests from us. You know, I can travel the world and see every different culture that when I was a little kid, you know, teenager or whatever, I used to judge other cultures as being stupid or or their food or their clothes were dumb and America's the best, you know. Yeah. And now it's like the opposite when I travel. I'm like, God, these cultures are so rich and beautiful and unique. And I I enjoy all of them and see the, the beauty in all of them. I still may not want to go live in India or something, but I love Indian culture. I see the beauty of Indian culture, right? So discernment is an important spiritual attribute because everyone's unique. You are a unique expression of the source. And so you, you're like a puzzle piece that fits in in a certain way. And you can own that. You can trust that and not feel, not guilt trip yourself for not necessarily enjoying every person's company you're around. You can absolutely love people and dislike their company at the same time. A hundred percent. I think that was a beautiful analogy you had with, with the fish and with, you know, just the friends and everything. So no, I definitely like, or the chemicals. That was the other parallel that you brought as well. No, that's a super useful one. I was, uh, where was I going to go with that? Forget where I was going to go with that, but what's popping into my mind is going to be a little, a little shift. <laughs> nice. So, you know, insert some doo -doo -doo. <laughs> a little bit of a pivot. What I saw something that you practice was Kundalini and Kriya yoga. I've never heard of Kriya before. So I let's start with Kriya. I, I think Kundalini we'll, we'll get to that at one point, but, but what exactly is Kriya yoga? Well, Kriya yoga is a form of Kundalini yoga. Okay. It is for the purpose of awakening Kundalini energy in the nervous system. But what it is in summary is like spinal breathing. So you're sitting in a meditation posture and you're breathing through the nose with your awareness at the root chakra. And as you inhale, you're pulling prana up the spine all the way to the crown or the third eye, depending on the practice. And then as you exhale, you trace the spinal nerve back down to the root again. Mm. So you're kind of like gently milking the spine with energy and with attention. And what that does is the, the spine is like the highway for spiritual evolution. It's also the highway for the nervous system in general. It's the center of really everything that makes us a human. Our energy centers are inserted into the spine. So it's kind of like the, the supercomputer of the human body. So when you milk it with energy and attention in a meditative format, it, it speeds up the evolutionary process spiritually. So much so that ancient Kriya yogis, like, are you familiar with uh, Yogananda? I'm not. Okay, so Yogananda is a really famous Indian yogi who came to the West in the 30s and kind of brought a lot of yoga to the West. But these, these ancient Kriya masters say that, I think it's something like one hour of Kriya yoga practice is equivalent to one year 
of a human lifetime of spiritual evolution. Interesting. Meaning just breathing. Let's say like a per Yeah. So like just a person who's let's say not super spiritual or they don't really understand that they're a soul on an evolutionary journey that's here to learn lessons and things. Just the amount of spiritual growth that they're going to go through in one year is the same amount of growth you can consciously move through in an hour of spinal breathing like that. Because when you charge the energy centers with energy through the breath, you are activating them and amplifying them. So the first thing it does is it causes the blockages from the lower chakras, the red, the orange, and the yellow ray, to begin releasing some of the blockages that are stuck in there. So it's a great way to begin healing and uh, balancing yourself spiritually. But what it also does is that it will bring like the heart chakra online over time, the throat, the third eye, and begin to activate the latent abilities in those energy centers much, much faster than if you're just kind of going through life on the natural trajectory of things. Fascinating. And that's all just from breathing and then keeping you like your mental awareness through your spine the entire way. Yep. And the way I teach it, and I think this is the traditional way they teach Kriya, but I sort of like to exaggerate the, the breath retention at the third eye or the crown. It's like you're pulling all this prana up the spine, and then you have a big concentration of prana at the third eye. And I'll, I'll teach my students to hold that um, attention at the third eye for five to seven seconds. And I mean, you can really feel it tingling um, like static electricity. It's very powerful when you uh, get into this practice and then you exhale and you trace it back down the spine. It's a, uh, it's a way to harmonize the masculine and feminine energies of the body in, uh, in the yoga tradition in Hinduism, they teach that the masculine energy comes down from the, the crown and spirals downwards. And it's called the Pingala Nadi. And so that's our masculine or solar energy. And then we have the feminine energy at the root at the root chakra, which spirals upwards. And that's our feminine or moon energy or sexual energy. And so the tracing up and down is kind of like moving energy through those nadis to wake them up. And typically people will sort of gradually induce a Kundalini awakening process if you commit to a regular Kriya practice for long enough. So I remember, I think I read on your website that you, that you had some crazy experience by doing kriya uh, i think it was some sort of like your your body like it felt like it was on fire or like there was a dragon was breathing down your back i, I <laughs> hopefully I, i'm assuming that laugh means you know what i'm talking about <laughs> oh yeah so how long were you practicing before you experienced that and like what did that progression kind of look like in your kriya practice so i started in like 2019 through Yogananda's book, uh, Kriya Yoga, The Art of Self-Realization. It's like super short, like 20 pages or something. And it was in uh, fall of 2021 when I had my first, it's, it's called the inner conjunction. When, uh, when you hear about Kundalini awakening, most people think of the event that happens where people say it feels like a bolt of electricity shoots up their spine. And have you heard of this before? In a different, in a different sense, but I'm going to get to that sense a little bit later, but yeah, keep going okay. for what you're saying. So it's a very famous like experience that many people have. 
where a, a huge amount of energy surges up the spine and blasts out the top of the head. And people say that they, they see God, they meet God, uh, they experience oneness. And then typically what happens, I think for more people than not, is that once that event is over, which typically lasts about a minute to a few minutes at tops, is that uh, it will set off all of the different blockages and distortions in their energy centers that haven't been healed yet. It will sort of like set them off and make them go crazy and haywire so that some people literally have a psychotic meltdown after a Kundalini awakening or inner conjunction where a lot of people don't even know what happened to them. I mean, this happens to people who are totally not on a spiritual path. Sometimes people fall off of a horse or get into a motorcycle accident. And if they jar their pelvis or their root chakra just in the right way, it can set off that energy. And then they're, they go to a doctor. The doctor says, oh, you're having a, a psychotic meltdown. Take all these drugs. We're going to put you in the psych ward. You know, And it's just an inevitable process of awakening that fourth density energy where it's, it's, taking, it's trying to take you to the fourth density of consciousness, which is the heart chakra density. Uh, the fourth density is love and unity consciousness. So everything from the third density, the solar plexus chakra of ego, has to be purged out of the system. And that's this kind of unraveling die-off experience people have after a kundalini awakening. So if you facilitate it through something like Kriya and just through having a genuine spiritual practice, daily meditation, you know, you're working on yourself, you're trying to be more self-aware, be more loving then you're not going to have a hellacious experience like that because you don't have so many blockages that are going to go get set off, right? Uh, in the law of one, Ra actually likens it to sort of blowing a circuit board. Ra says if the, if the entity is not prepared for this event, it can break the circuits in the system and it can be physically painful and it's definitely very psychologically painful. So I was lucky that I had been practicing Kriya meditation for many, many, many years. And so what happened, the way it happened for me was that I had actually done a type of uh, chanting meditation for the first time called Japa. Have you heard of that? I think I've heard of it. Is there usually drumming done as well? Is uh, that a little different? Sometimes in, in like a Indian sat song, there may be drums sometimes, but it's um, those necklaces people wear that are mala, mala beads. Okay. Those are actually called um, mala necklaces where you you say a mantra and you hold one bead in your finger and then you move to the next bead. And there's 108 of them. And you go through a full round of the necklace, which takes about 10 minutes. Um, I had done three rounds of Japa that night, just trying out kind of a new practice. I'd been doing 10 minutes of Japa each day, but I, I was like, let me do 30 minutes. Because with Japa, you can get into a really deep flow state and get into like an alternate state of consciousness through it because you're just I chanting see if I could reach because you're basically just chanting this mantra over and over again yes yeah. as a it, it like it shuts as a quick parallel go ahead as a quick parallel for your religious background it's pretty similar to the catholics with rosary beads right right very similar to the rosary so you can chant until you put yourself in an altered state and i wanted to see if i could reach that through japa and um, i sort of did it was it was a great experience. I was, I felt really activated, but I came out, you know, went downstairs and was sitting on the couch with my fiance watching whatever show we were watching at that time. And I had this horrible restless leg syndrome, like 
way, way worse than I've ever felt it before. So I'm sitting there trying to watch our show and I'm like writhing around, like I can't get comfortable and I'm like flexing my legs and I can't get this, this energy out of them. And so I eventually, you know, it was like, oh, let's just go to bed, babe. And we go upstairs, I lay in bed and I'm sitting there writhing in bed. Like my legs are just, it feels like they're full of a hundred thousand Watts of electricity or something. And it was, it wasn't painful, but it was very uncomfortable. And then as I'm sitting there, I started to slowly get tired and kind of drift off to sleep. And just like a classic inner conjunction, as soon as I started to fall asleep, uh, I woke up to the sensation of my like tailbone area, like burning hot, like someone had put a, a branding iron on it. And I was like, what is that feeling? And as soon as I thought, what, like, what is going on? That moment happened, you described that I said was like a dragon breathing fire down my spine. Just this amazing surge of energy. Like if you could think about if someone hooked up a fire hose to your spine and just blasted the full strength of a fire hose, it was like that. And in my mind, I'm seeing these incredible, incredible visuals of, um, it was all blue colored blue, but like fractal geometry. And then to my absolute shock, I literally, and I don't know where this came from, if it was just conditioning, because I, I, I love Hinduism and I've studied it a lot, or if, it, if there was something to it, but I saw Shakti, the goddess with the six arms, blue skin, uh, the beads and the, and the dancing posture. I mean, I saw her like I was watching a movie of it. It was so real. And it was just this recognition of, oh, this is the goddess. Uh, in, in Hinduism, the goddess is Shakti, the goddess Shiva, uh, manifest and unmanifest. Shak um, Shakti is energy, that which creates the entire universe. Everything is made of pure Shakti, right? Shiva is space or ether. It's the space in which the energy appears and creates itself. So the two are one, but it's like the two dynamics of the creator, unmanifest and manifest. So there was this clear recognition of, oh, this is the goddess. This is energy uh, awakening in my body. And, you know, I can't, I can't put to words exactly what the communication was, but there was some kind of dialogue that happened between the goddess and myself. And from what I remember, it was basically her explaining what's happening in me in a very scientific way, but also in a very spiritual way. It was really cool. I just sort of knew intuitively what had happened, but I could not have explained it to, to anybody. But as the year went by, and I'm, I'm such a huge student of the law of one, I started to realize that this event called a Kundalini activation sounds a whole lot like fourth density consciousness in the law of one. Mm -hmm. And the way Ra explains it is that each chakra is an energy body. So we have the root chakra is red. So we have a red ray body. The sacral chakra is orange. That's the orange ray body. Solar plexus is yellow. That's the yellow ray body. Heart chakra is green. That's the green ray body. And Ra says a lot of things like when the green ray comes into activation, blah, 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 blah. Here's what it looks like. Uh, awareness of oneness, desire to be of service to others, open-hearted love towards all beings, no ability to suffer psychologically anymore. And I started realizing that all these changes that had started happening in me were exactly what Ra describes. So I thought maybe what we've called Kundalini for thousands of years on this planet is actually 
the awakening of fourth density energy or the green ray energy in the human nervous system. It's like a transition from one state of consciousness to the next. And to my absolute shock, a friend of mine showed me a channeling session from Quo, who's another entity that LNL Research channels with Ra. And this was from 2018. These guys have like seven books of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of channeling sessions over the last three decades. So it's a lot of material to sift through. But in this one session in 2018, they were asking Quo about Kundalini and if it had any relation to the Green Ray. And Quo says, you are very correct. What your peoples call Kundalini is the activation of the Green Ray body. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, I knew it. Like such a great confirmation. (laughs) Yeah. So that was fun. That's crazy, man. I mean, there's a lot of things in there. The first thing that was coming to mind, I try to, I do a lot of, I don't want to say research. I guess it's research, but I listen to a lot of like the ancient alien type stuff. Listen to, mm-hmm. you know, these, these parallels between whether it's Hindu culture or Christianity or trying to find where all these things align up. And this was actually something that I started thinking about recently, which is these, whether it's a blue God, whether it's, uh, you know, these different entities or gods, or even if it comes down to Greek mythology with the gods that they had with Ares or with, I don't even want to right. kind of dive into all the names because I'm trying to blank. The point being though, is I'm, I, I kind of am trying to project myself onto the past, the way they would have been viewing it. And a huge thing that always comes up for me is this idea of not being so attached with this physical world. Like a part of me, the way that our consciousness has evolved, at least in America, from an American Western ideology, is very much in, I'm going to say physical science, because I believe that there's metaphysical science that the West is now just starting to kind of uncover or integrate into physical science. Like I think that's a lot of your story. A lot of what I'm trying to do is uncover this connection or bring in the Eastern metaphysical science, the Eastern science into the Western science. And where this gets interesting for me, and I would love your perspective on this, is that these gods, these these gods that they always talk about, uh, some, you know, ancient, uh, what are they, astronaut, what are they called? Ancient astronaut theorists think that it's like a different alien coming to our society. Right. And maybe that did happen. I think there's evidence that it probably did, but where I want to stick with these, these certain gods is being able to experience those entities by getting yourself to a different state of consciousness, whether it's using psychedelic drugs, whether it's a a breathing ritual, whether it's a chanting thing that you are actually able to channel that energy. And then you have this very similar understanding of who those gods or that energy entity is. And you then articulate it in a different way based on your language and culture to manifest that in the world slightly different. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess I don't really know what the question is, but based on that interpretation, do you see a correlation between experiencing divine entities and then the entities that are portrayed in these Eastern or even our Western civilizations? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you exactly what I think it is. I think it is the collective consciousness of humanity. Uh, We're tapping into the collective consciousness. 
that millions and millions of people for thousands and thousands of years have associated uh, this event, Kundalini Awakening, with this goddess figure called Shakti. And so when we have an experience of something that the collective consciousness has acknowledged for so long, we may be able to tap into a collective thought or belief about it. I think that's even why some people, a lot of people see Jesus in their near-death experiences because there's such a deep belief in the collective consciousness that when you die, you meet Jesus, you know? But in another sense, have you um, have you seen the show Ancient Apocalypse with Graham Hancock? I've seen the first four episodes, so I'm, I'm still in the middle, okay. of it, but it's fascinating as shit. Amazing show. One thing that show makes really obvious is how in this, in the way of why ancient ETs would have visited different cultures on the planet. For example, Ra says in the law of one that they came to the Egyptians because the Egyptians were a very pantheistic society. So they believed that everything was God, which is what the law of one says. So for positively polarized extraterrestrials, and the law of one says there are positive and negative extraterrestrials, but it's about 90% to 10%. Uh, positively polarized extraterrestrials can't infringe on free will because that's what the negative ETs do. They try to capture people's free will through deception, enslavement, manipulation, confusion. The positive path is all about telling the truth and being of service and being, you know, a loving being who doesn't infringe on anyone. So to like, to like blow people's paradigms uh, would be as seen as infringement. Like if an extraterrestrial showed up in a fundamentalist church service and they all believe ETs are demons or something like there'd be such a, a crazy reaction that it would, uh, it'd be seen as a very negative thing to do for a positive ET. So you can see why in the ancient world, there may have been a lot of ET activity over the centuries and millennia of ETs visiting different cultures around the planet because the planet wasn't connected yet. Whereas if you did that today, anywhere on the planet everybody will know about it immediately so now ets kind of can't show up anywhere for any reason because the whole consciousness of the planet is now connected but in ancient egypt the uh you know the sumerians don't know what's going on in egypt or the people around the globe in south america don't know what's going on in egypt so if they show up to one culture all the other ones are still preserved the way they are and they said Egypt was a very pantheistic society that believed in the laws of one. So they showed up and started having a relationship with them to help them with technology and really spirituality more than anything. So I think when we look at the ancient world, we can actually see a plausible reason why benevolent, loving extraterrestrials who want to be of service without infringing or um, giving any certain culture more than they're ready to handle would have probably visited many cultures around the world, but we don't see it at all today. And so we just go, oh, that's that's bullshit. There's no way aliens came to the planet back then because if they did, they'd be here now. It's like, oh, no, no, that's you're missing a huge part of the picture of how this all works. No, that's a, that's a really big part of the picture. And I remember that I went to Egypt roughly the same time I started getting introduced to the law of one, or maybe I knew about the law beforehand. The point being though, is that, raw was so what's really interesting right is that egyptians actually only believed kind of like you're saying that there's only one god per se 
but then it's all mm-hmm. deviated out. Like it's all a, a, a separation yeah. of that one God. And that one God was called Ra. And it always left me with this curiosity if Ra in the law of one was the same Ra that these ancient Egyptians always talked about existing because Ra in the law of one says that he actually helped Egyptian civilization progress. So it really struck me as interesting with if they saw Ra as that highest conscious, highest conscious entity, if it's the same, Mm -hmm. if it's the same entity that these people are channeling, I guess I, I guess I assume it is, but the, do you know if there's a correlation between those Ra's being the same? Yeah. What, what Ra says in the law of one is that it's one of the first questions they ask in the first sessions. Are you the Ra from Egypt? And Ra says basically, yes, but not the way that you think, because when we came to Egypt 11,000 years ago or whatever it was, they already had a belief in a God, a sun God named Ra. And so they just thought that we were a manifestation of the sun God come down from the skies to help them. Right. Mm. And so we just agreed with whatever they named us, you know, like our name isn't Ra, but like, that's what your people first called us. And so now we just identify ourselves as Ra, which was the last thing we were named by your people, but really they don't have a name in the sense that we think of it because they don't have language. At their level of consciousness, everything is nonverbal, telepathic, so they don't need words. They can just deliver ideas and emotions instantly, which is a way higher level of information. And so when, when you read the Law of One, it's curious because every session, every transmission rather, begins with Carla saying, I am raw, blah, blah, blah. I am raw. I am raw. Every single transmission. <laughs> and that's the reason that that happens is because from Ra's density, you can communicate with any being you want to at anywhere in the universe through your mind. So it's like, how do you know who's talking to you at any given moment in your mind? Well, every entity has their own unique sort of energetic signature. It's like there's like a feeling or an, an aura, an essence you get. Kind of like when you think about somebody, you know, there's a certain feeling you get about that person. That's their essence, at least in your mind. And so Ra is, let me back up, in in nonverbal communication, let's say I'm going to talk to you. I'm across the globe in Japan and you're over here in the States. You're going to first feel Aaron's signature and then you'll, you'll get the transmission right after that. So you'll immediately know who it is who sent it. It's almost like you feel the presence of Aaron and then you hear the thoughts, the feelings, the whatever. And so that's how they do it on their level. So Ra's best way of articulating that phenomenon in words is I am Ra. Yeah, because so my history with the law of one, so you're aware, is I've never like sat down and read the entire thing. But I know there's a website called like uh, the law of one dot info or something. And then you can like plug in some search words and it'll like come up with a list of every time that this word is referenced in either a question or an answer. And I did, I did see that I am raw thing. So that makes sense. And what was really interesting was them describing like what or who they are. Right. And the way I kind of parsed it out is that they are that collective consciousness. Like it would be almost as if every single person on earth could feel and interact with each other's energy simultaneously to create or manifest like an idea out of it at the same time. 
is that first of all is that like an accurate articulation of that yeah that's that's pretty close to what it is as you know the law of one calls it a social memory complex right so it's like a hive mind or a group mind of it's like every every thought every memory every piece of information that the group of i think 65 million entities from venus is what ra is every single piece of data from anyone in that complex is now equally available to the whole so what's really cool is once you're once you're in a social memory complex which begins in the fourth density i could be in uh you know san francisco and you're in new york but i bump into an old buddy of yours and he's like oh hey how are you clayton and i can talk just like you're there through my body because i have full access to your mind and everything about your personality it's like i'm you and i can just speak like i'm clayton and deliver the same answers you would give if you were there so it's like we're still in a unique body but the consciousness we're pulling from is now a much larger consciousness. That's a wild thought. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I just blew your mind for a second. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I'm also kind of giving a dramatic pause for that to settle in for everyone and myself included, but is it? Yeah. So then is there some sort of free will that exists between you allowing your body, right? Like say Aaron's on the other side of the world and someone's like, Hey, Aaron, like they know that this exists. Like, Hey, Aaron, I want to talk to Clayton. Like, can you like, is there free will on your behalf to be like, nah, like I'm using my body right now. Or is there, once you achieve that level of awareness, it almost happens as it needs to happen. If that makes sense. Like it would be accessed because it need, that information needs to come through at that time. Yeah. Well, to speak relatively, because when we're talking about free will, we have to choose from the relative perspective or from the absolute perspective, right? From the relative perspective, each individual soul is still individual, even though they're joined to the full collective consciousness in the same way that every individual bee is still an individual bee, even though it's operating from a hive mind. So it's like, yes and no is kind of the answer. Could the soul named Aaron choose to say, I'm sorry, I don't have time to talk for Clayton right now or whatever. Yeah, I could. But the, the state of consciousness, the fourth density is pretty much unimaginable to a third density human because again, it's like a hive mind where there's no more sense of having a separate or individual will but your will is only to do what God wills. Like you, you can't even conceive of having a personal wish or will because it's, it's all seen as an illusion. What, what brings the greatest joy and fulfillment is to manifest the creator through yourself. So that's why I think why Jesus said, I only do what pleases my father. I only do what I see the father doing. It's like that. It's like I'm connected to God's intelligence so much so that I have abandoned any personal sense. So like, I wouldn't say no to that person because I don't have time. I'm headed to the mall to buy some shoes mm. or something personal. It would be if I felt the creator didn't want that interaction to happen, then I wouldn't. Otherwise I would speak for you just like you would speak for you if you were there. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense because, because I mean, even, even to this, this goes back to our the content or the comments that we read in the, 
This goes exactly back to the comments, reading comments on our posts, because you can feel if someone's just like coming from this place of you're an idiot, you're dumb, blah, 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 energy right. versus I actually want to kind of figure out and push the level of my knowledge past where it is. And you're willing to engage in that <laughs> you discern. Here we go. We wrap this in too. You're yeah. able to discern which energy that you want to consciously give more energy to, to elevate that collective or pursuing a more deeper truth of knowledge. Yeah, you got it. When I see somebody who genuinely wants to know something, then they may disagree. They may try to show the fallacy of a point I made. And I don't take any of that personally. I see that as their desire to know the truth. And so if they're going to know the truth, like they want to believe what I'm saying, maybe they want to believe all is one, but there's these arguments their mind has that seem to refute that idea. So those are the gatekeepers for them understanding oneness and accepting it. So they're sort of asking me, can you get past my gatekeepers for me? Cause I can't seem to get past them. Mm. What do you say about this or that? And I love those opportunities because again, I get sharpened as a teacher significantly from those interactions. I don't get better at teaching from people who ask softball questions that I've answered a hundred times. I get better when someone asks me a question I haven't had to articulate before. And so there'll be a back and forth between us. And I, I enjoy the process of helping someone see something. And if they don't see it, I don't get upset or, or bummed out for them. It's like, oh, they'll see it when they're ready to see it. But if they're ready to see it and they're asking or disagreeing with that intention of, I really want to know what you're saying, but I'm having trouble with this one idea. Can you square this for me? And to me, that's my favorite kind of interaction to have. It really is. Yeah, that's. I, I'm totally on board with you. You can tell whenever someone's actually like genuinely asking versus like kind of pushing away something I want to kind of circle right. back on you mentioning. I don't think I knew. I don't think that I knew that law of one or raw for that instance was from Venus. And it's reminding me of uh, who was it? Are you familiar with Valiant Thor? Uh, I know the name. So Valiant Thor was a, essentially an alien for all sense and purpose. Yes. That met with Dwight D. Eisenhower. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Oh yeah. And he said he yeah, was yeah. from Venus and like, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. I, there's a on the Wikipedia, there's a really funny quote where Eisenhower is like, Can you prove that you're from Venus? And Thor's like, How do you want me to prove that I'm from Venus? And Eisenhower's like, I have no idea. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, just do yeah. it. <laughs> like, what do you, what constitutes proof to you? And he's like, dude, I don't do something, <laughs> you know? Um so I found that so fascinating. Like there's a perfectly well-documented, like he gave him CIA access and like access to like the Pentagon. It's amazing. It's pretty crazy, dude. Like that, that actually exists and was actually a thing. And so I guess the, the question becomes, is that a man is raw still? And I don't, I haven't really followed. I don't know if the law of one covers this, but is raw still connected to Venus as a whole? And like the people who, live underground on venus or however that works and would valiant thor have been a messenger from venus to because it was during what was it during i think it was during the cold war because he was trying to like help prevent us from nuclear destruction and that was kind of like i think his mission at the time for coming uh but i I guess the question becomes like is that i i don't know what the question is maybe there isn't one i totally get it yeah so to be from Venus doesn't necessarily mean that they live on Venus currently, but that that's the planet of their origin, mm. of their species origin. 
every species apparently obviously has to be born on a planet, evolve on that planet, and then evolve enough that they can star seed and travel, which means they have to understand certain technologies and physics and laws of the universe. So Ra is in the sixth density of consciousness now. So they haven't lived on Venus for, I think, a few billion years. But what's interesting is that Ra says they actually describe Venus very well in the Law of One. They say that it was a very a harshly bright planet compared to yours, which makes sense because it's closer to the sun than the Earth is. And they said that the temperature swings were a lot more severe on their planet, still habitable. But like, imagine if it was like the Mojave Desert during the day and then you know, the Arctic at night, like it's pretty harsh contrast of experience. So you're gonna have to figure out a way to adapt. So Ra says, because our living situation was not as harmonious and perfect as yours is on earth, we actually were forced to become one and be unified and figure out how to survive on that planet. We didn't have the luxury of disagreeing over something, you know, mm. and on your planet, everything's so picture perfect. You guys have all kinds of differences about stuff and then go to war over them. It's like, we didn't have the luxury of going to war with each other. <laughs> Our planet's going to war with us every day. So oh, it creates unity, which is cool. That's hilarious. So <laughs> we didn't have the pleasure to create war. <laughs> we the need to acknowledge that for a second. <laughs> we have yeah. the luxury to create war, yeah. All right, sorry. Good. It's a good problem to yeah. have, I guess. Yeah, that's hilarious. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not something to laugh about, but I don't know. That's. I just needed to acknowledge that real quick. I, well, it's like we must have a lot of luxury on this planet. Yeah, <laughs> we're so grateful to have war. I, yeah. uh, I just had to make a point of that, but yeah, sorry. Go ahead with what you're saying. It's sort of like um, uh, rich planet problems. Yeah. Or something. <laughs> like our planet's so good, we actually have a lot of problems. Yeah, it's like the white the white people problems, it's like the first world country problem, first world problems. That's what exactly. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So what's cool is that in 2019, and I, I remember freaking out when I saw this from NASA in September of 2019, they pronounced that right at about two billion years ago. Venus would have almost certainly had biological life on it because it was at a, a point in its uh, orbit or just age or something that allowed it to be in the Goldilocks zone. And then uh, Ross says the planet, we, we transcended through fifth density and then eventually sixth, where you're pretty much just pure light at that point. And you can materialize a physical body through thought. So that's why... Uh, Thor, for example, Valiant Thor could appear like a person. It's because he doesn't really have a body. Mm. His body is pure electromagnetic energy being being orchestrated by consciousness. It's under the control of conscious awareness, right? So you can just think of what a person looks like and look like that person because light is information. Energy is information. So Ra is a a social memory complex now that doesn't live on a certain planet. But if you ask Ra, where are you from? They know you mean, what planet are you from? Right? Because we're talking to an earthling. They think they're from earth. So they're asking where we're from. So they're going to say Venus for sure. But I think if they had asked Valiant Thor, like, oh, do you live on Venus right now? What are your living circumstances like? They would have probably said, oh, no, I don't live on that planet anymore. But that's where I'm from. Yeah, it's always interesting when because I do channeling work on the side as well. And it's always interesting the way that you articulate something can have a drastically different outcome. Yeah. yeah. I experienced that with my dreams as well. Uh where was I gonna go? Oh, the the single thought or the uh thought what was it? Like they can create the the idea of being able to create something out of a singular thought 
or thought construction. Mm -hmm. This was something that I read pretty in depth on whenever I was researching the law of one, which was the pyramids. And what they claim is that they claim that they actually created the largest or maybe all three, I forget which one, but definitely the largest one. They said they created it from like a singular thought form where they almost just projected it just by thinking it almost into existence. Yep. I found that to be like pretty much the craziest things in the world. They say um, the way Ra explains it, I can actually pull it up and read it if you want. But the way Ra explains it is that there's intelligence in everything. Everything is intelligent. And they basically know how to speak to that intelligence in uh, any form. And they can ask or tell that intelligence to do something. Going back to what Jesus said, right? If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the ocean and it will obey you. Yeah. I think faith faith was the word Jesus was using in his language to try and articulate this concept of connecting in consciousness to something, um, almost like samadhi, like absorbing your sense of self, like become the rock in your awareness and then tell the rock what to do. And they say the rock then the intelligent energy in the rock carries out the order. And so, yeah, they basically imagined a pyramid made of limestone and the limestone from whatever quarry it was, I think it's like a hundred miles away, immediately made its way there, cut itself into a perfect triangle form and made this impossible structure that today scientists don't have a clue how we could ever replicate such a thing, let alone how ancient people thousands of years ago did it. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's something that seems like a something that keeps coming up when we're talking about like these 80 ton stone carving stone figures that they are like, oh, well, we think, you know, they don't even know where the stone came from most of the time. They're like, we think it's this this thing all the way over here or this is the closest possible quarry that's, you know, it might be on a different island in some situations and they had to have moved it. And so then we almost deconstruct it with the physical sense of the way that we interact with the world today. But then when you take this like thought form and, and I feel like this is also what came, comes back to the gods because, you know, there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of evidence with these ancient videos that suggest that they were tapping into this other level of consciousness and actually having very similar experiences because they find similar carvings in you know, that exist in the Philippines that are in Mexico, that are also in Egypt, that are in South America. And I mean, even that alone, I found super, super fascinating with, okay, were these people actually communicating with each other in some way, shape or form, or were they pulling something from a different level of consciousness or state of being that they were then manifesting in the physical form here? I mean, it's, it's a bunch of, it's really bizarre, but do you have up the uh, passage of how he said he created the pyramids? I do. Yeah. Uh, this is from session three, question eight. I'll just skip to the important part. Ross says, this energy is intelligent. It is hierarchical. Much as your mind, body, spirit complex dwells within a hierarchy of vehicles, um, and the intelligence of each ascendingly intelligent body, so does the atom of such a material as rock. So Ra's kind of saying there, in the same way that you have a mind, a body, and a spirit, rock also does, or the atoms within the rock also have a hierarchy in that sense, whatever that would be. And then it says, 
they say when one can speak to that intelligence, the finite energy of the physical or chemical rock body is put into contact with that infinite power which is resident in the more well-tuned bodies, be they human or rock. So that goes back to the what Ra teaches in the Law of One, that every atom, every grain of anything in the universe contains the one infinite creator in its totality, which is a mind-blowing thought in and of itself. So they go on to say, with this connection made, so you know how to speak to that intelligence in the rock, a request may be given. The intelligence of infinite rockness communicates to its physical vehicle, and that splitting and moving which is desired is then carried out through the displacement of energy of the energy field of rock from finity to a dimension we may conveniently call infinity. In this way, that which is required is accomplished due to the cooperation of the infinite understanding of the creator indwelling in the living rock. Might need to break that apart a little. <laughs> I'm on the same page, right? And here's where I guess I go with it is if we look at Western science where we're kind of keep, we keep breaking things down to their smallest piece, right? Like we discovered the atom where like that has to be the smallest thing. And then it's like, no, we have the Planck length. It's like, that has to be the smallest thing. And even in, I think the, the law of one, they talk about, or somewhere they talk about how humans may not ever actually scientifically be able to get to what the smallest atom or the smallest, I don't want to say atom, but the smallest molecule particle. is particle energy. Yeah. But it might be just that it's that energy field. Like there's that energy field that connects everything and everyone. And that's what I found yeah. so fascinating about this idea of, you know, what Jesus even says where, you know, you can tell a mountain to move and it will move. You know, we, we try to, we try our best to try to articulate how that means in our present reality with what we understand and try to pull things out. But what if there's just a literal meaning that you can get to this place of pure thought, pure consciousness, where you can literally tell any little, th every little thing to move. And yeah, it got interesting too, because they might actually talk about this in ancient apocalypse where a lot of chanting was noticed, I think, in some aspects of moving rocks or moving boulders. And it might be that the chanting would synchronize multiple people's brainwave function or brainwave, brainwave yeah. to actually create the outcome or the reality of just moving a simple rock and fitting it into this perfect alignment with everything else. I think you're onto something, man. That's That'd be an interesting experiment to conduct if you could get a room full of people to you know, like ancient civilizations had these tribal uh, mantras. They would have hoo, 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 stuff like that. And you have to wonder if that's not actually a kind of sound technology they discovered, where if you have a couple guys trying to move some huge boulder and by themselves, there's no way. But if a, a, a group of people, like 100 people or whatever, are encircling them and making this chant and they're getting into the same brainwave state, then it's like the collect the strength of the collective consciousness may be in some way be able to channel through them and then they can move these enormously heavy boulders that we just look at today and go well how could people have ever done that there may be you know technologies like that that because we think all ancient people were stupid and we're smarter than them that they couldn't have possibly had and i think it's probably the opposite i think we're so obsessed with our devices and stuff 
that we're missing out on all of these other possibilities in the universe around us. Dude, I'm on the same, I'm on the same page because where my mind's going is I used to play sports and football is a perfect example. Like you, oh, yeah. you have chance, you have these, you see it still today. I think there's uh who went, oh, something yeah. went viral recently. Maybe it was like a rugby team from Hawaii or something where they like had this like opening chant where they were like doing this dance. Yep. And I mean, think about it, right? You're getting everybody into the same physical, the same conscious, the same energy. You're, you're stimulating all the senses as you possibly can to get you into you're becoming the same, one, becoming one. Yeah, there it is. The law of one. <laughs> you're you're, <laughs> you're becoming this unified organism in order to carry out yep. a specific goal or desire. And if you can sync all of your brain waves to that outcome, that desire, that that reality that you're envisioning, then why? Like it, it just makes perfect sense to me that it would be possible. It's just that we are so separated. We all have different desires. We all are either operating from a place of ego or greed or lower vibrational frequencies that we don't care about one another. So we don't want to create great things. We would rather tear them down in our current society. Right. All power comes from unity, man. I mean, that's what power is, is unity in action. And I think whether it's football, whether it's you know ancient uh, war chants with the drums and the chanting, you know, there's there's many stories of ancient battles where two armies are coming to meet each other and one of the armies has the drums playing. That's why this was a very popular thing back in those times was to have drums and instruments and a kind of like chant that the whole army would learn together because when the opposing side hears that coming, they feel the power of your collective energy coming at them. And if they don't have their own chant and their own unifying mechanism, they're all kind of in a separate mind. Like what's going to happen to me? Ah, and they're going to get afraid, right? They're going to feel intimidated. So like most wars in ancient times would begin with these tribal chant offs of like, which side can feel more ferocious, you know, the, the fastest. And then the war begins and it's like, what better way to go into whether it's a team sport or like tribal combat or something where you have to work as a group to accomplish this task. What better way to go into that, right? Than getting into this super unified state through a kind of chant like that. Dude, there's got to be so much truth to it. Maybe we got, we've got to figure out a way to organize this to test it. We got to test, test this. I, I feel like one of the caveats might be is to actually find people who are maybe, I don't want to say like in, but at least progressing from 3D to 4D, right? Because if you get people that too many people that are in kind of like a fear based physical construct reality, they're probably not right. going to be able to put the same energy into it. Nope. Yeah, 100%. It's all about the state of consciousness you're in. It's not just, there's no, the technique is never the thing itself. So like if you had, you know, talking about like supernatural things or psychic abilities, yeah, if you get a bunch of ardent, skeptic, atheist scientists to try to conduct this experiment like that and just do a technique that a Reiki healer would do or a, a telepath would do, they're not going to get any results and they're going to say, oh, this is bullshit, bunk, we just proved it. But it's like, no, get into the same state of consciousness that the telepath or the Reiki practitioner is in and then do that and see what actually happens. That's to me where science and spirituality will inevitably have to meet one another because we will get to the point where, and this we're sort of at this point already and a lot of it is suppressed obviously, but people are gonna have the ability to levitate, read minds, uh, remote views with 100% accuracy. 
to the extent that science can't deny that it's a true phenomenon. And then in order to study it, scientists will have to become spiritualists in some way, start meditating, start practicing these things so you can see for yourself if there's validity to it, right? At a certain point, we're going to see science and spirituality have to do this, I think. Yeah, no, they, it seems inevitable. I mean, but I mean, I guess as you say that there have been no lack of catastrophes that have plagued humankind whenever they take their eye off the ball. So there, there definitely has to be some sort of grounded nature whenever approaching these topics to enlighten people. Right. But yeah, it's interesting too, because the thing that's coming to mind for me is the idea of cloud bursting. Are you familiar with this? I think so, but where you can explain it a little if bit, if you kind of just picture a cl- or like a, you don't have to picture a cloud, you see a cloud in the sky and you focus your energy on it. Usually you got to start with a small one, but you can actually like burst it or like disseminate it out into, uh, cause it's like yeah. a very, it, it's not like a, a, it's not like rock, right? Like it's actually a more loose right. item. Yes. Yeah. And I read a book about this one. Did you? It's not, it wasn't just about cloud bursting, but it's, it's a book called the energy cure. Uh, where a guy in the book, he meets some dude at a, at a local pool is like in the 1970s. And he was like smoking cigarettes and he's getting into a conversation with this guy. And the guy goes, Hey, I can make that cloud disappear with my mind. And he was like, no, you can't. So he does it. And to his shock, he makes the cloud disappear. He's like, okay, you got lucky. Do it to that one. And the guy does it three times in a row. And he's like, okay, well, this is getting weird. And then the guy tells him where his wallet was made. He tells him that there's a problem with his car and all this different stuff. And he said his engine, literally part of his engine fell out of his car on the way home. So this guy was like super tapped in. And that's when he realized there's something to this supernatural stuff. It's it's so bizarre. And I know even on TikTok, I've seen some videos where people do like telekinetics where they'll actually move like really small rocks by just like kind of like waving their hand over it. And some of them can be faked, but like there's even ones where people will put like glass jars on top of like aluminum foil with just that sitting on like a pin and they'll be able to spin it where, where I was, I was, uh, where was I going with this? Oh, I think it comes back to the collective consciousness of us because I was explaining this idea of cloud bursting to a friend and I'll leave it ambiguous but I was explaining it to someone and they were super interested in it. They were like, is this really a thing? Like, like they were on that edge of like, prove it, but I don't believe it kind of deal. And (laughs) I was like explaining it to him, explaining it to him. And we were kind of in a group setting. And so then there was like a running joke between us about cloud bursting. And so then we actually re-entered the group and I said something about cloud bursting and I repeated it to like the group or like another person. So person B now heard the idea of cloud bursting and they were like, okay, basically like, that's not real. That's bullshit, you know? And then person a, who I was originally telling us to was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't believe it. Like I was just kind of like, you know, like, you know, I, I didn't believe it. Yeah. And I saw that switch happen. I'm not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that switch happen so quickly in front of my eyes that I was like, it was fast. It was just a fascinating experience because yeah. of like that. It's like that grip of societal, either societal pressure or like, like somehow from the collective consciousness that we all kind of have to believe that these things are real or they are able to be done. Otherwise it's not going to be done. It's almost like, it's almost like the power of not believing it is just as powerful as the power of believing in it. Yeah, no, you're right on it. That's exactly what it is. I think the collective consciousness 
drastically determines the nature of things on the planet based on what's accepted and what's not. <clears throat> the four minute mile is a great example of that. I love right? it. I love that example. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what we think is possible is what becomes possible and vice versa. Um, I even think that um, physical disease, sickness, I well, think before we, in large part. Before we get off of it, do you want to explain the four minute mile before, you know, in case no one's heard of it before? Oh, sure, sure. I actually don't know um, exactly what this story is, but basically the four minute mile had never been broken and people thought it was impossible. In fact, like um, uh, exercise scientists and people like that said, there's the human body's not capable of breaking the four minute mile. And then finally one guy did it. And then what is it like just within a year, like three other people did it or something. I think it was more than that. I think it was like upwards of 10 did it within like the year after someone broke it. Wow. Something like that. Yeah. So it's like, that's the power of belief, right? I think that sickness is also like that because we all believe the majority of us believe that we're not living in a, a, a spiritual universe, but we're living in a material universe where death and disease and sickness and lack are normal and really exist. Well, then that's the reality we're going to create for ourselves. But even Ra explains that sickness is just a disconfiguration of energy in the body and all energy follows the mind. So it's like, as soon as I believe that I'm in a material universe of separate physical particles that are not one with each other, like that invites the possibility of disease in and of itself. So we have a lot of correction to do in our belief system as a planet before we can get into that fourth density state where Ra explains in the fourth density, there's no sickness. There's no such thing as disease. Uh, the, the lifespan of a fourth density being is like 90,000 years. Uh, so it's like, it's just a higher state of consciousness, but with that comes a more advanced physical vehicle. It's crazy, man. And that's where it gets interesting, I guess. Like if, do you feel like there's a cap on the consciousness that you're able to attain specifically in relation to the collective consciousness? Like, do you think that you need to raise the collect, like, like there's almost a cap on the level that you can hit until the collective consciousness raises to that kind of same level that you're at? Like, where do you feel like that balance kind of lies? I actually think about this question all the time. Hell yeah. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that I, I grew up uh, seeing healing miracles happen all the time. And in fact, as a kid, I would pray for people in my church and I saw all kinds of miracles when I was a kid. I was hoping we were going to get back to the miracles. <laughs> yeah, we, I knew we'd come full circle. Um, so I practice this now from a totally different viewpoint than as a Christian. As a Christian, we were taught, you know, we ask God and if we're not a sinner. If God's in a good mood, God will heal someone. But that's very clearly not how Jesus walked in the supernatural. For Jesus, it seems more like he was just walking in a way higher level of awareness than the average person on the planet was. It's where he didn't, when he saw somebody with leprosy, he didn't actually see a sick person. He saw somebody whose mind was sick, who believed that they're a separate being apart from the source and so because I like to say one person in God is a majority because he knew from a higher state of awareness, you are one with the creator. Therefore, there is no sickness in you. He could sort of call that person's true potential into being. And what seems to happen is a physical healing. 
But I think what Jesus was seeing is that in God, every idea of the universe exists in its perfect eternal form. So the perfect idea of man, for example, the perfect idea of planet and all these things. And then everything else we see in the universe is the infinite varieties of manifestations of that one idea. So flower, for example, we could say that flower is one perfect eternal idea in God's mind, but because God's infinite, all of God's ideas are also infinite in potential. So that one idea of flower manifests on earth as all the different species of flower we see, all the colors, shapes, and sizes. That's like what God is like, right? So each one of us is a different possibility of the one perfect idea of man. And what the Bible calls that one perfect idea of man is Christ, right? Mm. Christ is the word they use for that perfect idea of man that Jesus, the human person who lived 2000 years ago, realized in himself and fully manifested and fully demonstrated it. So in the perfect idea of man, there's no sickness. So because Jesus was living from that awareness that these things don't actually exist in God. They're just distortions of people's minds that manifest in the body. They can be healed from a higher level of awareness. So I practice this in my own life when I get, you know, like a little injury at the gym or I get a headache or I get a stomach ache. I'll practice raising my awareness to the eternal realm where I can actually not just intellectually, but spiritually connect with the knowledge that in God, there is no sickness, there is no pain, there's no lack. I mean, this is how we manifest abundance as well, right? We have to feel abundant inside of ourselves for that abundance to manifest. If I'm just focusing on my problem of lack, I'm so poor, I'm so poor, please give me money, please give me money. I'm just believing in lack more and more, right? I have to lift my eyes away from lack altogether and know that only abundance is really true. Mm -hmm. So like only abundance has truth behind it. Lack doesn't have any truth behind it. There, there's no lack in the creator. So it's like a dream that, that humanity dreams when they don't know who the creator is, when we're not aware of what God is, infinite abundance, perfect wholeness, eternity, infinite when we don't know that, we manifest the opposite of those things, which is sickness, scarcity, evil, and so forth. And that goes back to what we said earlier about why you can't judge anybody. It's like they just don't know who God is. So all we should do is be showing them who God is. We shouldn't be judging them for that. I think that's how it works. So if the collective consciousness has a strong belief that sickness is real and death is real, then I don't know if this is true, but it feels true that that may make our job more difficult to demonstrate healing or abundance when we're under that collective energy field. And maybe if we went to a planet where everybody knew that abundance is all that there is and health is all that there is, then maybe we would just walk in perfect health there, no problem. I don't know if that's true, but it sort of tends to seem that way at least. No, I I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I don't, I almost, in my life, I don't think that that's questionable because I may a big thing that I've been working with a lot are dreams recently. So like I'll set an intention before going to bed and say, mm -hmm. I'll say like, I'll ask a question or I'll ask it to show me something. 
and then a story plays out in my dreams. And then when I wake up, I try to interpret the dream of like what it means. I know whenever I'm a kid or in the movies, even whenever a little kid has a nightmare, the classical example is that the mom and dad tell them that it's not real, that it's not a thing, you know, go back to bed. It's not, you know, it, we, we're told and we're programmed that things aren't real. We're programmed that right. there's scarcity. We're programmed that, you know, if you're, if you're in a, an abusive relationship, you likely saw your parents in an abusive relationship. It's almost just the programming that happens. So if you are programmed to believe that you can create a pyramid with just pure thought form, if you're programmed to believe that all the way down to dreams are real, then it becomes the status quo of the reality that we live in. Where yeah. it gets interesting for me, right, is that it, it almost comes to a level of what is true. So like in what you were saying that it's almost like abundance is the higher truth. But if as a collective, we choose to align with scarcity as being true, then it becomes the truth that we experience. There's the higher truth of abundance, but we're choosing to associate with a lower level truth. Right. Yeah. Very well said. I think we could boil it down to um, the size and the strength of your God idea determines your level of consciousness, meaning like we can know conceptually that God is infinite supply and there's no lack in God. But then as soon as money runs low, we stress it out, we're getting upset. So we don't really know it at a, on a spiritual level, but we have the idea of it in the mind. So that's a start at least, but it has to go deeper than that, right? Because the universe is not made of mind. So ultimately the mind can't actually change anything but the mind reflects reality and the more aware we are of reality, we could call it the spirit. Everything is spirit, pure consciousness, whatever. When we're more aware of that, then the mind can reflect that truth. And then we, we actually manifest things. We heal the sick. We raise the dead, all the things Jesus said we would do. It's just a natural result of knowing how the universe really works in reality. But like a sixth density being, for example, who is, you know, a pure light body, well, their level of consciousness is like hundreds of times more powerful than ours. One of the things that I love about the David Hawkins scale of consciousness is that it really shows how higher levels of consciousness equal higher amounts of energy because energy and consciousness are actually one, right? It's the same thing, really. So to have a higher level of consciousness means more energy available. That's why I think the depictions of aliens, like in ancient Egypt, aliens always have way bigger brains, like three to five times the size of ours, because they probably have to have bigger brains to conduct and to channel the higher magnitude of consciousness streaming in to the body, right? And so if you have that much more energy available, it's probably effortless to move a rock with your mind. But in this third density body with a comparatively very small brain, we just don't have the capacity, the horsepower, let's say, to actually do stuff like that. Maybe to small degrees, like with aluminum foil or sticking pennies to the wall or something. But to move a mountain, maybe we just need more circuitry. I don't know. No, this is actually a really, a really interesting thing because I think there's a lot of parallels here. There was a girl that I thought was going to be on before you, but she pushed back her date. And she's a channeler and she works with like light, light language. I'm not sure if you've heard of this before. I have yeah. you've heard of this. So 
she was briefly saying, and I'm not going to get too deep into it. We'll save her story for her thing. But her core concept was, is that she was told by source that she needed to put on more muscle mass in order to be able to receive and do what she was going to do, which ended up being to be able to transmute light language. So she actually needed her body to be bigger, more muscles. Wow. I mean, she's, you know, she's not like huge by any stretch of the imagination, but she needed that muscle mass to be able to transmit light codes or light language, whatever it is. You're like, and then she won Mrs. Olympia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. And so, and so where it gets interesting and the other parallel I'm thinking of is how they say that we don't use a hundred percent of our brain. And this was something right. that I'm still trying to toy with. Right. But if we're not using a hundred percent of our brain, if we're only using a small capacity of it, I don't know what the percentage is there a chance that that percentage are these telekinetic, telekinesis, telepathic powers that are just lying dormant within us that we actually have poss- we have the ability to access, but we've just been told over and over again by parents or society that they don't exist. And by that reinforcement, we've blocked off that portion of our brain. A hundred percent. And actually brainwave science kind of shows this. When they study the brains of monks who are meditating, monks, this is when they discovered gamma waves, right? I think in 1992 or something, they studied the, the brain waves of these, of these monks in total stillness and meditation. And yet they were producing these omnidirectional waves from the, I think the hypothalamus, the center of the brain that were going like between 32 to a hundred Hertz, a hundred reverberations per second, like three times higher than the highest beta wave, which we thought was the highest brain wave. And yet they're completely still. Well, they found that states of ecstasy and rapture and joy would produce these gamma waves as well as intense concentration. And again, with way more energy comes way more possibility for consciousness. If fundamentally everything is made of consciousness and even quantum mechanics basically says that it is, then everything has to happen through consciousness. And I think that that means like the idea of quantum entanglement, for example, when two particles become entangled, we can move them across the universe from each other. And any manipulation of one immediately happens to the other because they're sort of sharing one being now. What if that's how manifestation works? What if I, in order to manifest some possibility, I have to see it in my imagination and overwhelm it, entangle myself with it by feeling it and experiencing it in my mind like it's happening to me now, such that I actually react the way I would react if someone gave me a check for a million dollars or whatever it is. And then once I connect to that idea, remember what we said a second ago, all ideas exist in the mind of God. God's the origin of every idea. And so if the idea of wealth or abundance exists in God, I just have to entangle my consciousness with it. And then I will, I will have to reflect that abundance just like quantum particles do. I mean, and it, usually the way people get into this is through law of attraction. And I think that was like one of the first videos that you even put up as well. I know it's something that I came across as well. And I mean, it definitely seems interesting, right? Because it even goes back to this whole thought form thing. Whereas if you create something in your mind, it, it like 
does that actually create the real thing in the outer external world that is just taking time to come into your present day existence until you actually feel into that energy fully? I mean, it seems that way. It seems to be that that's how this all works. Yeah. Well, I think we actually get it backwards because we believe that the universe is material, physical, and it's not, it's spiritual. It's all pure consciousness. And so from that lens, what do we normally say when we talk about manifestation, you know, whether it's Abraham Hicks or Neville Goddard or whatever teacher, they'll always say like, connect to the idea you want to manifest, feel it and experience it. And then the real thing will manifest. Well, I think it's actually the opposite. It's that the idea is the real, the actual, the eternal thing that always exists in God's mind. And the physical form in which it appears is the temporary. It's the illusion of it, right? It's the unreal aspect of it because whatever appears in time will eventually disappear. So we're actually connecting to the real and then manifesting an illusory dream version of it. But the idea is what really matters. So that's why I like to say, can I think about the most specific life scenarios I want to manifest? Yes, I can. But those are all the different variations of the one original idea. So let's say I want to be wealthy and successful. Well, then I'm going to think about myself as a, a businessman of a tech company who's making $30 million a year and I make it all specific. So I can, I can manifest that way, but why would I limit myself to that? You know what I mean? Why would I cap it there or limit it? It has to be a tech company or a, whatever. Let me just connect to the original idea of wealth and success and abundance in God and just marinate in that feeling of abundance that always exists in my being, in God's being. And then let's let the universe decide how abundant it wants to make us. To me, that has always worked out so much better than when I try to get too specific with what I want. What that's making me think of is uh, kind of a a thought or an idea that I've been kind of grappling with lately, which is focusing on kind of like that biggest picture possible. I apologize if you guys hear my dog. I don't know. Can you hear her? <laughs> it's super quiet. Super quiet. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'll push through it then if it's just me. Probably not for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's just me, I'll try to push through it, but yeah, stick with me here. What a... What was always a really fascinating and interesting idea is that I've been very fixated on almost the last step, the making a million dollars a day, having the biggest podcast in the world. And something that has actually, it's now starting to sink in is to almost like break down those steps to focus on like the next step, because there's almost this feeling of, of, well, I don't feel it per se, but by placing such a high expectation on things is it's. I, I don't feel aligned with it, right? Because I'm so far away from a million dollars a day where right. to actually conceive something so improbable, it would be a huge jump. And this is almost like the same thing with the cloud bursting is you can't teach someone to make uh, the great pyramids of Giza overnight, right? Like you got to start with clouds, then you can move on to move yeah, a rock. Yeah. And it's almost like totally. building that mental process, building your your consciousness muscle to be able to take on these bigger and bigger things. That's a great point. I think that that really gets into the nature of how and why the source created the universe to function the way it does, like metaphysically speaking in the illusion of time, for example, 
in the illusion of matter, for example. We know that these things don't actually exist, but nevertheless, we seem to really experience them. And I think that's because, as we say in spirituality, the universe is the creator experiencing itself. Mm. That's the law of one as well. It's as if the creator, because it's the only being in the universe, there's nobody else that the creator can have a conversation with, right? To be like, hey, can you like describe to me what I'm like? And then the other being can say, oh, well, you're eternal and you're infinite and you're perfect love. Oh, wow. Thank you. Like, you can't do that. <laughs> All right. So how is this creator going to know itself if it's the only being in existence? Well, it's got to create some kind of medium through which it can slow things down and have a like, I use the analogy of eating a steak. Like the creator wants to eat the steak bite by bite and it wants to savor every morsel of it, right? It doesn't want to just scoop the steak up and swallow it in one bite. And so the steak is the universe. It's you and I even though the creator is infinite and eternal and all powerful and omniscient, it wants to gradually evolve its way towards that understanding. So it can like enjoy the full spectrum of all that it is. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about the law of one is that the law of one shows how the creator does that through the seven densities. It's like, this is how the creator divides up its return journey back to itself. It starts as the most, dense, unconscious, finite form there is. Rock, water, earth, air, right? The four elements. And slowly devolves from the four elements to microbial life, insect life, plant life, animal life, higher animal life, human life, fourth density, fifth density, sixth density, seventh density, until it finally takes that last step and merges back into itself through the knowledge, I am the self, I am the source. That ultimately doesn't come until the end of the seventh density, of which we are a very, very long away for us here in third density. So it just gives you an idea of the magnitude of this thing we're inside of that we call the universe. It's like we're in the most unimaginably brilliant, intelligent 3D video game of who am I <laughs> that could possibly ever exist. Well, that's what's always interesting about simulation theory. I've had a couple of people ask me, like, do you believe in, oh, what a party foul. <laughs> and you told me to silence my phone. Who sets an alarm for 530? What am I doing? What am I doing, man? It must have been important, it, dude. It's not. Of course it's not. <laughs> Nothing's more important than this conversation right now. Than the present no, moment. That's exactly, right. Exactly. It just pulled me out of it. But we were talking about uh, simulation theory. theory. People always ask me if it's true. And my first thought is always like, well, it depends what you mean by simulation theory. Do I believe right. that there's a bunch of servers running in the background and there's like binary code that's creating me right now? Well, no, that's not exactly it. But the idea of video games is such a perfect analogy because there are so many layers to the idea of being a soul reincarnating and I mean, first person shooters are the best example. Like you fuck up and right. die, then yeah, you like will reincarnate again, try again. Okay. You reincarnate again, try again. The rules are a little bit different, but there's definitely a lot of truth to it. Oh yeah. And where this is interesting and this ties in is actually to something you said earlier, which I haven't brought up yet was you said you use star seed, which is a word and phrase I've heard before, 
but only used as a noun and you actually used it as a verb. <laughs> you said two star seed other, other places. Yeah. And that, and that it was kind of, inter- that's really interesting to me that to think of it in that way, because I, I guess let's, let's take a step back for people who don't know, like a star seed is the idea of somebody who is from like a different star system, usually like Orion, Sirius, uh pleiades i think is a big one for me at least i keep hearing that one a lot and so i'm still haven't done a full dive into it so with this idea of the law of one this idea of being a soul incarnating how does that really work with the idea of like two star seed like if you know i'll use myself as an example where i think that i'm i have pleiades in me whatever i haven't done a full deep dive in it i don't really know for sure but Pleiades seems like it's none of us do. Yeah. Bro. <laughs> We're all just guessing. <laughs> yeah, let's be let's honest. Be honest. <laughs> no one fucking knows. Um, so what, like, what does that kind of mean in your interpretation with the idea of law of one? Like, am I like a? Does it see? Well, you, you took the by saying no one fucking knows. It kind of defeats my question. <laughs> <laughs> now I get what you're saying. Well, I mean, I guess take it for what it is, because like to me, it's like, all right, is my primary source like being of Pleiades or am I just a soul that like tried the Pleiades for a bit? Oh, that, that energy really gravitates toward me. Like I really enjoyed it. Now I'm trying out what earth energy feels like. Then I'll go to like Orion and try out some of that energy and see what that feels like. But I really like Pleiades. So I'm going to keep incarnating there more and more and more. And then it's like, well, you got some learning to do. So then you go to earth and you do some learning there. I mean, so that's why I found it really interesting how you said two star seed, and and maybe you didn't mean this, but to me it came across as if, you know, a lot of Pleiades or a lot of Orions, Iranians, Iranians. I don't know the right Iranians. Yeah, good question. Yeah, I don't know how that's <laughs> uh, if they just came to lay their imprint on Earth like during this time period. I, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of curious where your mind was going whenever you said two star seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're very you're very close to how it works from the law of one's perspective. Yeah, when I said starseed, I was using a different terminology for it. Uh, the, the physical type of starseeding, which is like traveling to another star system in a physical vehicle of some kind. Mm. You know, humanity is still somewhat far away from doing that, but maybe not as far as we think. But uh, there's another definition of starseed in the New Age community. That means a soul that's changing its native location that it's going to incarnate into. Like you said, maybe you've been a Syrian on a planet in the Sirius galaxy for 20 lifetimes, you're going to go try earth out now. Well, you're considered a star seed in the spiritual community. The The term the, the law of one uses is called a wanderer because mm. it's as if you're wandering from your home country. But what's really cool that the law of one lays out is why souls wander or star seed and how it all works, which is that through this densities model, It says that the third density is kind of like the wild card of the seven densities because it's the only density you you can wander to if you're a fourth, fifth, or sixth density being. You can incarnate into a third density body, which you can't do with any other body. Like if you're sixth, you can't go back down to fourth or fifth, but you can go back to third. And the reason for that is I suppose you could incarnate as a fourth density being if you're really sixth. The point is that it would be of no advantage to you at all because it'd be like you going back to second grade and having to take a bunch of basic addition subtraction questions 
it's like what a giant waste of my time yeah <laughs> i want to go be productive and learn about astrophysics or something that's what it'd be like for a soul who's already graduated that density but in the third density there's something called the veil of forgetting where all souls that incarnate on this realm do not get to remember who they are or where they're from so it's a bit like putting on a vr headset to play a video game that when you enter the game you completely lose any memory of who you were outside of the game and you fully assume the identity of the video game character and it's like a way to see what you're really made of right because you know you and i are sitting around waiting to play this amazing new vr game where everyone's putting themselves to the test and they're going to see if they really get afraid or if they're courageous and bold and stuff and so we're like oh bro i'm going to be so brave in there like just watch i'm going to be like a superman in there i'm not going to be afraid of anything I'm going to conquer everything. Like I'm going to kick ass in this game. I put on the headset. I go into the game and I'm like, ah, from every little thing <laughs> running around like a little pansy. And then I come out of the game and remember, oh shit, I was just playing a game and oh, I totally sucked. And then I walk back sheepishly over to you and you're like, I guess you weren't made of what you thought you were, huh, bro? <laughs> That's what third density is to souls. It's like a way to really test yourself in the fire to see what am I really made of? What lessons have I really passed? Mm. Because when I come here, I don't get to remember that I'm an eternal soul who's in sixth density or whatever. I, I have to believe fully that I'm a human being living a temporary life and I'm going to die and be annihilated. And then how do, I, how do I face life then? Does the energy of love in my soul awaken? Does the remembrance of God awaken in me? Or is my soul a little bit too young for that? And it needs a few more lifetimes of incarnation first. So that's one element of third density that souls will choose to see how advanced they really are by wandering back here and going through the forgetting. The other reason is because you can be of great service in third density compared to the other three above it. In four, five, and six, and seven, I guess, there, it's perfect harmony for them. They're so advanced. There's, there's no real problems to be solved there. They have to travel the universe looking for other planets to help and exploring the powers of consciousness and things like that. So they don't get the same kinds of tests that we get here in third density. And so beings who will see a planet like ours, for example, that was really struggling kind of on that tipping point of, is this planet going to go positive or negative? Like, it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, souls who want to be of service to a planet who believe that they're going to be able to bring a really high vibration to this planet and help lift the, the pressure on that planet of the dense unconsciousness of the population. Uh, Ra says a lot of beings will choose to wander to that planet to be of service because on the positive path or the positive polarity, you, you polarize by serving others, by helping others and loving others. So it's a way for their souls to progress through their evolution by coming here. But it's like a risk reward thing because the the rewards of succeeding in third density and living a very good virtuous life are very high. You get a lot of polarity out of it, but the, the consequences of failing are also pretty severe because you get really karmically entangled on that planet. And then you got to spend a few more lifetimes, maybe undoing that karma. So it's a, it's a decision that souls have to weigh. That is an interesting thing. And something I think that gets echoed through some other books that I've seen with like hypnosis where what was it? Yeah, they talk about that, but then there was something with 
Jeez, I'm going blank. What's happening? <laughs> happens to the best uh, of us, man. No one's perfect, right? Well, well right. here's what's interesting, man. This was something that I was thinking about. Is how does this relate to the instances like Valiant Thor or even Ra being this social memory complex who helped the Egyptians out? How is it that Valiant Thor is aware that he's, you know, this higher being? And maybe I uh, mean I might know the answer already. Now that's coming into me, but I'll just let you answer it <laughs> as I'm talking about. Like, wait, but uh, yeah. So how does a like a alien or valiant Thor or even Ra know that they have this ability and then are able to manipulate third density matter using this higher state of consciousness? Right, right. Well, because they're not wandering. Mm. Uh, Valiant Thor's was not a wanderer or a star seed. He was actually a sixth density being who traveled to this planet, right, in their sixth density body to be of service. And that's another form of service. That's the most common type of service that extraterrestrials play in the universe. If you if you understand that the universe is self-organizing and self-correcting, just like the body is. Our body is a perfect example of, it's a microcosm of the macrocosm in the sense that the way that my body communicates with itself and like if one area of my body is deficient in minerals and nutrients, another area of my body will give up those nutrients, travel them through the bloodstream to that other organ to help it out because everything's connected and interdependent, right? The nature of the universe is oneness. So the way that that happens on the macro scale is that as species or beings evolve and they can starseed, meaning they can build vehicles or use thought or whatever to travel to distant worlds, they go there to help other planetary civilizations with their problems. And that's a way that just like the body sending nutrients, the universe is sending nutrients in the form of intelligence and higher consciousness. And positive beings do that mostly to third density planets like ours. Our planet is kind of like a prime uh, uh, subject for an ET to come help. But the difference is that they have to wait until our collective consciousness gets to a certain tipping point, And maybe it's 51%, I don't know, but a certain point where more people acknowledge the existence of ETs and are welcoming towards them than those who don't. And then they can honor that collective consciousness and actually walk among us in a way that doesn't depolarize them. Because again, if they just showed up on the White House, we're like, yo, we're here and we're advanced and we're here to show you our technology. Like all the religious zealots in the world would lose their minds. A lot of people would lose their minds in fear, thinking that these are ETs are going to kill us. And so those ETs would actually be depolarized themselves. They would, in a sense, go backwards mm. in consciousness somewhat because of the negative effects they caused on the planet. So they're very careful about how they interact with us. And it seems like right now we're sort of in this acclimation phase where they're showing up in our skies in undeniable ways to slowly kind of introduce us to their presence, which is actually, it's very intelligent, right? When you think about it, if you wanted to show that you're not hostile to like a scared animal, if you were like in a room with an animal that's terrified of you, like how would you go about showing it that you're not its enemy and you don't want to harm it? Well, you probably wouldn't try to go up to it and be like, hey, calm down. You know? <laughs> I swear I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you, man. Relax. You'd probably just sit comfortably on the other side of the room and just, you know, 
bite your fingernails or something. You would look as non-threatening as possible and you would let the animal slowly walk over to you and sniff you. And you might put your arm out to let it sniff you, but you're going to show it. I'm not a threat to you. That's exactly what ETs are doing with planet Earth right now. They're just kind of showing up in our skies and helping us to see that, okay, we've been seeing these UFOs now for like a hundred years or more, and they haven't taken our planet over yet. So pretty sure if these guys have the technology to fly here, they could probably take us over in a snap of a finger if they wanted to. So the fact that they have it is probably a good sign. Right. And I think it's funny because you answered like three questions that I had in a row. So <laughs> I don't know if we're connected to the same thing. I'm like, all right, this is the next question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real thing. It's a real thing. But then it's interesting, right? Because, uh, damn, my dog's going crazy again. Breaking my train of thought. Let's go clean focus <laughs> better than this. Um, we can talk about e ETs and contacts and all that. Yeah, because, oh, yeah, because it's so fascinating how there's more, there's so many, it feels like there's so many more like sightings that have been popping up in recent discovery. And it also seems like, because this is something that I always answer whenever people talk about like alien disclosure, I find it so fascinating the people who want to say, oh, like the government hasn't said they exist, so I don't believe it. Or I know it's so crazy. <laughs> But what's also crazy is that the government has actually said that they exist. Like now they have the evidence yeah. is actually out there. So that excuse is gone now. It's gone. But it, it's it's funny because it fits what you're saying so well that people will find so many more reasons to discount the existence of them. You know, it's like, oh, the government hasn't said it, or oh, I haven't seen them, or you know, so it's like this like mental blockage or this mental game that they play out in order to I don't know, hold themselves back from seeing it, or maybe it's maybe they don't want to, or maybe it would somehow impede their, what they're doing, like the karma that they need to work off in order to like, like maybe there's something like you need to work off enough a karma or something where if you haven't actually worked off enough karma, then being exposed to that might actually be detrimental to your progression as a soul or something like that. Does that make any sense at all? You're very much right. Yeah, that's that's what Ra would call infringement. Mm. And in, in fact, when you read the Law of One, many of the questions they ask Ra, uh, like, can you tell us why blankety blank happened? Ra will say no. Because mm. like, what I have to tell you to explain that is a little bit above your pay grade right now. And you know, one of the dangers of giving ego too much knowledge before ego has been endowed with the loving intelligence of the heart and the feminine, which is what we're just now awakening into, right? Fourth density consciousness. If you give the ego too much knowledge, it will weaponize it to the worst degree imaginable because that's all it can do is control, control, control. It doesn't have the intelligence of the heart to soften and balance it with the awareness of oneness. So we just create the nuclear bomb. We create biohazard, uh, bioweapons and stuff because we can, because we have the science to, we don't have the spiritual intelligence to use it or, or not use it, you know, wisely and safely. So I think that that's another thing they wrestle with is like, if we tell them, if we give them too much technology, they're not at a level of consciousness yet where they would use that benevolently. They would use it very destructively. And when you see the world we live in today and the way that world powers are treating their technology and using it, you're like, please extraterrestrials do not give us yeah. any information about your technology because these people will weaponize it for the worst imaginable reasons. 
So do you think it is that the it's it's the people who are in see okay now here's where it gets interesting with power. So because for I've struggled with this for a while the idea of let's say the president of the United States having power it's almost more like a perceived power that we as a collective give that individualized person it's not like they actually hold power if that makes any sense it's just that or the pope or the pope even a better probably example yeah. than even the president it's almost like, you know, there's these people in quote unquote positions of power, but we just assign them as being in power when in reality, if we all wanted to, you know, I should probably not say this on a podcast, but fuck it. If the collective <laughs> people wanted to say overthrow a country or a government, they outnumber people, you know, 10 million to one. Right. So it's not, it's yep. like, it's almost like there's a, like, like even China, for instance, right? Well, maybe that's another extreme. But like if if every single person in China was like, fuck this, we're done with the inhumane oh, yeah. shit, like they could overthrow that country tomorrow if they decided to. In a few hours, yeah. Right. And so it's like, it's, it's really fascinating to me the way that like the mental contrivance of these things occur. Like I know with my dad in the, like the whole like COVID thing, but this is where it's weird, right? It's like, you know, it, I'm having a hard time articulating this. But with the whole COVID thing, like he, he kind of gets into this rabbit hole of like, you know, I can't believe they made us like basically herd us into these, like, you know, into our houses. And I always kind of put forth like, well, it's only if we let them, you know, it's only if you yep. give up or, 100%. or sacrifice this freedom for that, this, this obscure idea of safety. And so it, I don't know where I'm trying to go with this, but I just always find it super interesting that it, it feels like we almost give up a lot more power or don't even realize the power that we do have whenever it's just sitting at our fingertips or like we're able to connect to it so easily. Yeah. Well, you're sort of getting into the hundredth monkey effect and all of that and the power of the mob mentality mm. where um, we've seen these like, you know, Antifa uh, mobs over the last few years where people are doing insane stuff that they would never do by themselves, but because they're in a giant mob of people like all chanting, like, kick him, kick him, punch him. Like oh, yeah. they just start doing it. It's like the, the collect again, the collective consciousness kind of channels through that person. So this is the scenario we're facing every day when we go out into the world is that we live in a world of illusions. Like everything is really a fiction that we, the people have made up because we are third density beings still. So we label everything We're we're in this illusory world in our minds. So everything is, corporations, you know, like even counties, zip codes and states, all this stuff is illusions. Like they don't exist in reality. The dirt doesn't have a zip code. You know what I mean? The, the soil doesn't have an address. <laughs> so yeah, It's all just earth, right? But we divide everything up because we're divided in our minds. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we'll see start to melt away. These, these fictional things we've created to make society happen. It's only on the basis of the fictional things, even titles like a president. What's a pre that doesn't exist in reality, but we give it a title and then give it perceived authority. Like you said, as we progress in consciousness, we'll realize the futility of that. And we'll, I think we're going to see a society without so many labels, um, titles, uh, positions and things like that. All of the, the hierarchical nature of the way humans make society is what makes it a power structure where it could be, you know, 99% of the planet can be completely controlled by 1% or less. 
at the very tippy top of the pyramid, it's not because that's the way reality actually works. It's because we have a totally distorted idea of how the universe works. And so we manifest it in the form of corrupt societies, corrupt world leaders. And until we wake up and say, okay, we've made this mess because we've acquiesced to these power structures and to this corruption, we've turned a blind eye to it for so long. We've allowed it to fester and grow. So we have to stand up and say no more. And I think that's the great awakening, right? That happened in 2020 was humans tend to not make changes until there's a huge calamity facing us, right? And that's kind of what happened was with this pandemic was we saw the true nature of our governments and leaders that they very much want to place us under their heel and make us, you know, the slave class that does whatever they say and mandate without any question. You know, you're not even allowed to question what we tell you to do. Those demons came out of the closet in 2020, which is the best thing for humanity because we will not ascend or evolve past this level until we stop cooperating with that stuff. And so now we see this great awakening of people starting to realize that, hey, being being ruled over in and of itself is a negative construct. We shouldn't, we, nobody should rule over anybody in the world. Everyone is created equal, which means nobody should have any rights that anyone else doesn't have. That sounds like a radical concept to us. But when you think about it, that is the most basic concept of what it should mean to exist in reality. All is equal. Like that's a rule that favors everybody equally. So we're really just getting back to the basics in a sense. Yeah, it is crazy how how basic that truly is, but we seem to not embody it as much as we should. There's a really good, I don't know if you're familiar with After School on YouTube. Yeah. yeah they he he put together, Mark, he put together a really good video about mass psychosis. It's from the book uh what's the book name? I think the Rape of the Mind or something. Oh yeah, I know which book. I haven't it is. read it yet, but but he like put together this really good, you know, video of it. And it's about how like the people on the bottom, the, the lower class will say like they, they almost like are okay with being in servitude. And then the people on the top, the elites, as we call it, you know, they get the ego and the pleasure from controlling people. And so there's this really yeah. interesting dichotomy where the people being ruled almost allow themselves to be ruled. And, oh, and yeah. so I guess we see in China, it kind of goes to what we were talking about. Uh, they're, they're, Dude, we see it here in America. Yeah. 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 We, we, we subside to a lot of shit that we probably, you know, if we were truly free, and this is where it gets interesting, right? Like if we were truly free to do whatever we wanted, right? Like what's the epitome of true freedom? There wouldn't be any laws, right? Like there technically wouldn't be any laws. I get the importance of them to deter people from doing stuff. But like at the, at the crux of it, if we were all truly had a good moral compass yeah. and you know, I do believe on average, more people are good than bad. I don't think we'd have a functioning society if that were the opposite, if the opposite were true. Uh, but mm -hmm, right. setting that aside, it's like, you know, true freedom means like no laws, you know, it means we're not absolutely doing any of that. Yeah, that's, that will be how society looks at a fourth density level at some point. Once we're an enlightened civilization, we don't need laws like laws were there, were put in place you know, thousands of years ago in ancient societies, because the average level of consciousness of a person back then was way lower than it is now mm. to where like super barbaric stuff was like normal to them. Like someone, you know, uh, kills my goat, I kill them. Like it just, that's just fair. Right. 
well, that person needs a law to say that that's not fair and you shouldn't kill that guy. Like we can make remedy in other ways, you know. So at a certain point, we needed laws for people to be able to behave in an ordered way. But really common law, which is the law of the land, the law for mankind, uh, this it's based on the Bible. It's the it's the founding fathers, um, the, the principal law that the founding fathers instituted America upon was God's law straight from the Bible, which is a very simple system of law. It basically just says it's the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do no harm to anyone. And then if there is ever harm done, you you go make remedy. You ask for forgiveness and you make it right. Outside of that, you have free agency. Live how you want. Be who you want to be. Explore life as you want to. Nobody should ever have any right to tell somebody how they can live their life, except for when they're doing physical harm to someone else. Outside of that, we should have full free agency. And at a certain point, again, in consciousness, that would be so obvious. Like, I heard an interesting quote once that someone said, crime is in and of itself a subconscious revolt against a corrupt society. Meaning the laws, the way that society is set up is inherently corrupt and unfair. And so crime is actually a response from the subconscious mind of humans saying, this system itself, I don't want to obey it. It's wrong. you know." And so a truly healthy society that had a fair law system would it would basically have zero crime because everyone would be incentivized not to commit crime and incentivized to be a good person. Because if the laws just do no harm, then, hey, I have full rights and ability to live my life however I want to. But in, if I do harm to someone else, it's like I took away my own rights. I forfeited them, right? Because I chose to do harm. If that was the only law of the land, it would, it would make everybody want to be good to their neighbor because nobody wants to have their rights taken away and only you can take your own rights away by behaving unjustly. But we don't live in that society, right? I can be a good person, miss a, a tax payment. The FBI comes to my house and takes my assets, throws me in jail. Like I didn't do any harm to anyone, Right. but there's a corrupt system that says that I didn't pay them what they want me to pay them. And that's where it kind of gets out of control. So let's, let's scale this back then a little bit to the individual, because this was actually something that I was thinking about right before our conversation, which is kind of in tied, I want to tie this into divine masculinity because we've kind of like dipped in and out of it. And I think it has something to do with like the love aspect that you're talking about that we're starting to transition into. I noticed this like meeting or reading, whatever the hell it was before our conversation, I, I kind of noticed that like joy or like the feeling of joy resonates a little bit more like in my heart center, or like kind of like tolerates my collarbone versus the feeling of calmness is kind of below my heart. And it really got me thinking about divine masculinity because embodying that joy being, let's say, happier, smiling, more bubbly is something I've been trying to embody a little bit more of. But then if I, if we look at like stoic principles, or if we look at, you know, divine masculine that we associate with, or maybe the James Bond types who I've always associated a more masculine figure as that is that more calm place, that calm space of right. being that rock. And where it got interesting is I felt like that there has to be some sort of combination of this joyous feminine energy, but then the the flat, almost more calm energy to ground you into the masculine. 
So I, I guess in terms of divine masculinity, how do you see the the combination of being bubbly and joyous with the the calm, centered, stoic nature that we perceive with masculine energy? Dude, you ask really fun questions. I love <laughs> Thanks. it. Appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. So uh, the way that I see masculine and feminine is if we go back to Shakti Shiva, uh, Sh uh, Shiva represents pure consciousness or pure space. And then Shakti represents energy, which is all the forms that appear in the material universe. That, that conversation is hiding somewhere. It's just going to take yeah. a sec. All right, cool. Experience some technical difficulties. Um, all right, back. cool. We're back. All right, I'll clip that up. Nice. All right, you're saying about Shakti, Shiva, divine masculine. Yeah, so Shakti is the divine feminine. She's pure energy. Everything is made of Shakti. So Shakti is always changing form. She's appearing and disappearing. Uh, one of Shakti's manifestations is called Maya, the goddess of Maya, which is illusion, as you probably know. So in that sense, we could say that feminine qualities, uh, in a sense, sort of appear and disappear. Meaning it's not, it's not really realistic to be in a state of euphoric ecstasy all the time. You can't really live from that place and like be grounded in reality, but that energy is very divine. And actually what makes it so divine is the fact that it's not omnipresent in your experience, right? It's a peak experience, mm. sort of like the feminine will create a planet for a while and then it dissolves the planet and then a new planet or a new star, a new person. It's always shape-shifting, right? But what's the substratum? What's the foundation upon which she can appear and disappear and do her dance, the dance of Maya, is the masculine, the grounded, rooted, like you said, stoic, unchanging, you know, ground of being. That's what the masculine represents. So that's why I think the sages, the Stoics, people who've really embodied this principle and have raised their awareness through meditation, uh, they tend to be more like that is because the default mode of our state of being is peace, which is kind of calmness, okayness. Everything is just fine. We're just at peace with everything. Total acceptance of whatever it is. Nothing, nothing moves me from my center. And then within that peace, joy, love, ecstasy can appear and disappear all at once. But like those aren't necessarily meant to be abiding states all the time. And, you know, everyone's different. So some people do embody a very bubbly, joyous personality most of the time. But even those people can't be that way all the time. At some point, peace has to be our default again, which is just the inner silence, the stillness of being. It's, it's expressed as a kind of peacefulness. So I think that that's the hallmark of an enlightened being is that they'll have a very peaceful, relaxed state of consciousness. And I mean, if something beautiful happens, they can be in the heights of ecstasy that quick, but they, they always come back down to that grounded foundation. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because I think that's kind of how it's, I've heard it described where it's like the container, right? The container is the masculine, but yes. then the the fluid inside the containers that feminine it it can move it can leave it can come dynamic back. yeah I find it interesting the way you said that with like the joy can kind of be there sometimes and it can't be there but i guess it's always having that awareness that grounding of knowing who you are whether or not there's joy or not in that essence right 
And I mean, eventually when, when we integrate the divine feminine, like you said, I'm, I'm working on embodying this more. Once we integrate the divine feminine to a certain extent, if we already have the divine masculine integrated, then we achieve what's called bliss consciousness, which is kind of the goal of yoga. And that's where we actually do live in a kind of subdued joy all the time. It is our default. Like mm -hmm. whatever may happen, like if I see a little child about to get run over by a bus, I'm not going to be feeling ecstatic joy in that moment because it's not the appropriate state of being to be in for what the moment's dictating, right? So everything's equally valid from the universe's point of view. So in that moment, I probably need a sense of urgency and panic right, to run over and save that kid. But then as soon as I save the child, that state of being has played its part, no longer needed. I'm right back into that bliss again. So we, we can achieve that in third density, but it's, you know, it's a very high enlightened state of consciousness that requires a lot of spiritual discipline. This is interesting. So this goes, there's actually two different avenues here. One of them's relationships. So like having a significant other, I'm going to come back to that one. The other one that I'm actually interested in is something I talked about in the podcast right before yours, where he was saying that he believes that we can actually utilize a, a fear mentality to get us to do things that we don't want ourselves to do. Right. So sure. this, this would have been, so like I was having a difficult time trying to like piece this together in my mind of, you know, let's use a food example. I'm a, I want to make myself afraid to eat a piece of chocolate. And maybe this is kind of a silly example, but I want to make myself afraid to eat a piece of chocolate because of the health ramifications, the, you know, diet, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Now it kind of conflicts with a different idea I have, which is of, well, I should just love my body and just want to do things for the highest good of my body because I love it. So I just would rather focus my energy towards eating an apple because of the energy of love versus the energy of fear. You got so, it. Like, where do you kind of sit in that paradigm of, you know, trying to embody this fourth density mentality and utilizing fear or lower vibrations to prevent yourself from doing other things versus focusing on higher vibrations to do the things you want to do? Yeah, great question. Really, what we're talking about here is negative polarization versus positive polarization. The negative polarity is about control and power, power over. Uh, the positive is about power for, power with, power as. So if I'm trying to change my behavior or my state of being, and I'm doing it through a fear device like you described, uh, or like a selfish, vain motive of, I just want to look really good so I could go conquer more women on the weekends, that's a negative reason to adapt to a stimulus. So I'm negatively polarizing. So for most people, I think the law of one says about 90% or more of beings in the universe are inherently positive and will always gravitate that way. And about 10% are inherently negative and will go that way. Well, most people are going to do that for a while, like kind of like you described with the fuckboy phase, and it will eventually wear off because the negative polarization will become too unenjoyable inside of you and you'll, right. your soul is reaching for something positive. So you can make the same change in yourself for a positive reason, like you said, because I want to be more loving towards people or whatever it is. I want to be of service. Um, I want to manifest wealth in my life because abundance is who God is. It's an aspect of God's nature. 
and my demonstration of abundance in my life is like an act of worship of who God is. That's a very positive reason to manifest wealth versus I want to get the coolest car, the coolest house to impress people. That'd be a negative reason, right? To manifest money. Gotcha. Right. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to have to sit with that for a bit. <laughs> I think I'm, I think my, my energy is pulling me more back towards the uh, divine masculine, divine feminine conversation. So you, are you currently in a, you said uh fiance's, are you guys currently married then? We're getting married on March 11th. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, congrats. That's dope. Thank you. So, so then here's, here's, I guess where my question comes into play, right? Because we have both masculine and feminine and feminine energy within us all the time. Right. And, you know, so if we become aligned in both of our feminine and masculine energy, my question then would become, you know, what is the utility of being with a, a female? Like if I am, and this might be like a limiting belief, but like, if I am divine feminine and divine masculine energy, then I'll never be with another person because my thought process is, is that there is usually a, you need polarity within a relationship to build kind of oh, yeah. the, the <laughs> like, oh yeah, we go. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I know exactly where you're going with this. So then where do you find that, or what is the, help me understand a more enlightened way of looking at this as opposed to, oh, okay, well, I, because I can feel it's from the ego if I'm like, well, I'm not with somebody because I have divine masculine and divine energy within me. So there's mm -hmm. no need for another person, but like something about that doesn't feel right to me. So what is maybe yeah. a, a higher way of thinking about this? Yeah. Cause that's separation, right? Uh, in truth, because we are, we, we, because we contain both polarities within us, then our, our beingness cries out to be connected with a polarity, just like even the very cells in our body do. So even though you're a man, I'm a man, um, we do have the feminine and the masculine polarity within us. We couldn't even exist if we didn't have both. But at the same time, each one of us is a unique expression of the creator's mind, of the perfect idea of man. So all of us have a unique balance and it's a very natural balance of the masculine and feminine. Some people naturally express a way higher percentage of masculine. They still have the feminine polarity and they need to integrate it to truly express who they are in a healthy way. But they're always going to be a more masculine energy expression than they are feminine and vice versa for those who express feminine. So it just tends to be much more often that people... Uh, souls that incarnate into female bodies are trying to embody more of the feminine and then vice versa for the masculine, but not always. There's obviously uniqueness. And that's, I think what homosexuality is, is someone wanting to embody more of the opposite polarity of the body they're in. That's a very cool expression of the creator, but nevertheless, we seek polarity. So if I'm a very masculine oriented man, uh, and I have friends that are very feminine oriented men and they're still straight, but they just have way more of that feminine energy. Well, you're going to need a partner that balances you in whatever your unique expression is, right? So because I'm much more on the masculine end of the spectrum, I, I seek, I crave, I'm attracted to a woman with who really embodies the feminine. That's not true for everybody, but for me, that's what the polarity charge looks like. 
So I think that's why all of us are meant to be with unique people because we have to find our perfect balance based on our unique makeup. All right. You said something in there I really liked. Let's see if you can, I'm blanking on what it was, but it was something like finding the expression, the polarity expression that's unique to me. Well, do you remember how you worded that? Like the perfect balance of um, the polarity that complements my polarity. Is that the idea? Maybe that was it. Compliments. Like, ah, shit. All right. Well, we haven't recorded. <laughs> we haven't recorded. There was a little piece in there. I should have cut. I should have went through it. But um, I think I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, they're in a lot of phases. So to project my life onto this, it's like there's a lot of different phases in my life where I lean masculine, whether it's working out, whether it's I mean, even in the bedroom, you know, you need that counterpart that's going to come right. in and then kind of fit the the jigsaw puzzle that, you know, can balance. That was it. You said balance out. There was something oh, like right. balance, uh, find like a counterpiece that balances me. You need the polarity that balances you. Yeah. Cause you're, see you're seeking balances. it inherently. Like if I have a more masculine expression, it's just like magnets, you know, or in chemistry, um, opposites attract, right. That's a, a rule of chemistry. So we are like chemicals as people, we're going to be attracted to our opposite. This is why everyone notices this, right? I mean, I have so many gay friends that have even ex expressed this, that even in a homosexual relationship, one person plays the feminine more often and one person plays the masculine more often. Uh, and typically you'll even see a couple, whether it's a gay couple or a lesbian couple, one of them will look more masculine or feminine purposefully because that's more of their natural makeup. That's how they like to express themselves. It's who they feel they are. And so they'll be attracted more often to a person expressing the opposite polarity. Yes. That's something that's something I've explained to people before, but it seems like a very difficult that's not, that feels like at least when I've explained it to people, a difficult understanding or connection for people to come to. That idea of how do you articulate this? The idea of like there's your physical gender, but then there's like there's a there's right. an energy, there's an energy gender that you express more more consistently, more dominantly yeah, throughout totally. your life or presence or being. And they think that your body is your polarity. You know what I mean? So if you're a man, right. you're all masculine, no feminine is totally not true. Right. And I think if we're going back to the, if we're going back to the fuck boy phase, I think that was what the missing piece was. It was an unhealthy integration of oh, yeah. feminine and divine masculine where, you know, being the nice guy is like, an unhealthy feminine and then the fuck boys an unhealthy masculine and you know thank god thank myself whatever you want to call it luckily i've now seen like okay i i see where the truths were coming from in this but it's also no longer how i want to align and it's kind of that soul progression that you you get to or you try to embody down the road let's say or at least looking back on it it's like okay here's where the healthy pieces are here's where i'm trying to more fully integrate to embody that divine nature of both energies yes there there's a kind of a principle in polarity on the on the negative polarity we can say that that which one lacks one seeks to conquer mm. so when you don't have when you don't have an integrated feminine which really the feminine represents like self-love self-appreciation you know if you don't have that you will naturally seek to conquer women as a subconscious way of getting what you think you lack. 
If you are a guilty, shameful person who thinks you're lacking innocence and purity, you typically become an abuser or a child molester or a rapist or something. You, you find some way to steal innocence from others. You, you, people that seek the most innocent, like children, in themselves feel the least innocent about themselves. I'm evil. I'm a horrible person. Mm. But they'll, they'll have to embrace that part of them because it's so painful to live with it and acknowledge it and try to push it away. So if they can't heal that part of themselves, they'll make a switch to cope with it and become that thing sort of guiltlessly and they'll bury it and say, oh no, this is just who I am. This is great. And uh, we see that we see society in some ways with the like normalizing of pedophilia. We see a part of society trying to do that on a collective level, which is to say, look, there's so many pedophiles out here. Let's just make it normal. So it doesn't hurt so much. It's like, no, 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 we can never allow that to happen because that's where the greatest evil starts to take over. Right. No, that's for sure. Cause I do know that there's like, you know, they're trying to dude, what the fuck was it? I saw a, a clip. Oh, someone was like saying they were trying to like redefine what pedophile was like change the, the name of it. That's it. Yep. Uh, minor attracted person. Yes, that's right. I was like, dude, like, yeah, I need the orientation. And they're trying to like identify with, they're trying to get on the LGBTQ, whatever train. Yeah. And dude, that's, that's crazy too, because that's, it's really, it's just really fascinating, right? Is like, where is that? Like, it's almost because like to give the devil its due, right? Like we're trying to figure out what the most appropriate way is to this. Okay. So this is where it comes back to discernment and judgment, right? Because you know, there's probably this feeling of guilt if you're not going to include them in the LGBTQ, whatever it is, community now. Yeah. If you don't include them, then you should feel guilty because they're just people who are hurting, like you pointed out. But there's a level of discernment that we need to healthy, healthily, healthily, healthily have a healthy healthily, way, yeah. have a healthy way of integrating into our society with that structure. And it's probably what comes back to the divine masculine is that our divine masculine is weak in this area. And so then the, the unhealthy feminine comes in of like, just accept them all. It's fine. Let this happen. But, but to your, and maybe I'm articulating that wrong. I don't know. It's an interesting idea, but. Well, you're totally hitting on it, man, because I can't remember what the study showed. Do you remember the study they did on pedophiles where they found that like 96% or something of pedophiles admitted to being abused as children. I didn't like, know about the study, but I just, I kind of always just knew that that was yeah. Think, true. Yeah. We all know it's true, but it's like, we didn't even know how true it was. It's, it's like almost exclusively a phenomenon that happens to those who've been abused as a child in some way, it's even crazy. in, it doesn't have to be like some crazy heinous abuse, but in some way they were sexualized and it's so to see that sexualizing children is normal because I was sexualized as a kid mm. and it felt really bad and I couldn't live with that part of me without changing my relationship to it. So then it, it manifests as a desire to sexually infringe upon children as an adult, just like you were. So the mistake we've made is that we have demonized these people and attacked them and dehumanized them and forced them even deeper into the shadow where they're forced to accept this part of themselves in some way in a negative way where they embody it and act upon it rather than saying, Hey, come here, brother. It's okay. You're not, you're not evil. You're not a bad person. You just have a mental imbalance that we can absolutely help you to heal. These are just traumas we have to deal with. If we don't deal with our traumas, 
we're going to have an experience later down the road that's going to seem evil or psychotic. And it's just our own unmet, unfinished business that we haven't attended to. That's what we've done a horrible job at, at a, as a society, whether it's towards murderers, rapists, pedophiles, doesn't matter. Towards those we deem as evildoers, we call them evil and push them into the darkness even further. And then we get upset and surprised at the evil we've created through that. You know what I mean? It's we're oh, the we're sure. responsible. For sure. <sighs> Heavy stuff. Hopefully audience was looking for it today. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Aaron, I feel like we could talk for hours. I'm getting this internal poke that I need to we need to wrap this up. So I think we have been talking for hours. <laughs> we we have. That's actually we've true. already done it. Uh, dude, I always give, first of all, super grateful you're here. Thank you. I'm going to throw all of your links down in the show notes, but I love giving the floor to you. If you want to talk to the audience, tell them whether you got something to promote, whether you want to encourage them to do something, reference the links below. Uh, so dude, the floor is yours. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. I'll just say, uh, to put on people's radar that if you want to get more involved with any of my content or what I'm doing, I have two kind of main programs right now. One that is about um, studying the book called A Course in Miracles, which I think I mentioned a couple times. You said it once, and I was going to ask you if that's something you have or you're promoting someone else's stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's probably the most well-known channeled text in the spiritual world. Um, It's basically a a course in mind training and, and healing your mind. A lot of the ideas we talked about today are from A Course in Miracles of projection makes perception and things like that. But it's just amazing, life-changing spiritual text that um, what we do is we study the daily lessons for 365 days in a row from January 1st to December 31st. Because in the course, there's the course actually has a section called the daily lessons where it takes all the truths it teaches you in the text material and it boils them down to one teaching a day, one practice a day. And it's really just like, three or four basic teachings, you know, forgiveness and, and oneness, but it just teaches them in a million different ways from different perspectives to help you really integrate it better. So we take people through that every day for a whole year and we have some master classes and live Q and a calls and stuff. So if you're looking to study a course of miracles further, uh, that program is, is going to be right up your alley. The second program I have is called 4d university which after this conversation, obviously, you know what the 4D stands for. (laughs) And it's kind of a seven month curriculum I put together to create an online academy that's fully dedicated to the expansion of human consciousness. So it's three courses over a seven month period that walk you through a fourth density ascension process, beginning with mind training. The second course goes deep into meditation. The third course is about facilitating a kundalini awakening, which as we discussed, kind of is the biomarker of fourth density ascension. When that energy awakens, you're you're heading into the fourth density. So it's a I'm having an absolute blast with it this year. I've I started it in July. We have about 300 members that um we're just doing these practices together every day and people's kundalinis are, are popping off all the time. And it's it's such a dream come true to have a, a program like this where I can be a part of so many people's journeys and get to really like be involved in answering questions and specific issues that come up along the awakening path. So if you're looking for something more law of one oriented, 
then you can go to fordtouniversity.com to learn more. Hell yeah, man. No, dude, everything you're doing seems super cool, super resonant. So hopefully some people check you out, at least follow you on some of your socials. Cause I know it's at least your YouTube. Well, your, your Instagram is too. It seems like your Instagram kind of like dabbles in and out, I guess, but super aligned, man. So that guys definitely go check him out. Uh, dude, Aaron, thank you so much, man. Appreciate you having you on. Thank you, Clayton. I had a blast talking with you, man. We'll have to do it again. Oh, absolutely. I know we will. We'll, uh, we'll save a date in the future for sure. For sure. Hey guys, uh, speaking of dates in the future, guys, if we don't see each other in this reality, we'll definitely see each other in the sixth dimension. Mm-hmm.